Jack, Levi. The Book Club from Hell. Hello everyone, this is Jack with The Book Club from Hell, an entity dreamed into existence by a child author in a higher realm, one who dreams of being eaten by a crocodile. Nobody spoke and we listened. It's fiction time again, and what better place to go to for fiction than to F. Gardner? He is, after all, the world's premier author, as judged by the perpetual meltdown that is the 4chan literature board. But he doesn't only have 4chan's approval, his YouTube handle is at famous author, and if that doesn't get your attention, self-endorsement or not, then I don't know whatever could. F. Gardner is responsible for the Call of Horror series of books, a constellation of 13 loosely linked horror novels self-published on Amazon, the crown jewel of which is Call of the Crocodile, the subject of today's episode. Described by its blurb as a dark fantasy horror novel set during Halloween, after a boy is eaten alive by a crocodile, his family begins a descent into madness and terror in this odyssey of modern horror. Is F. Gardner serious? Is he a high-effort troll playing us all for fools? We got memed into reading this book, and we're no wiser for having finished it. F. Gardner was, and is, an enigma. So if you're ready to fall into a mirror house of oddly repeating sentences, wayward commas and metatextual masturbation, then enjoy. I don't want to be too mean to authors who are self-publishing. This guy obviously cares about what he's doing because he's written something like 13 novels and and talks at length about his craft on his YouTube channel. I think his YouTube channel is Famous Author. The videos are really something special. I'll, I'll put the link to his channel in yeah, the, I didn't in actually, the show I didn't, notes. I didn't watch any of his videos. It's him sitting in a bathrobe in a living room talking about how good he is, which is high-quality content, and I've watched a lot of his videos. But dis- despite the fact that I don't want to be too hard on people who are, making, who, who are trying to make new things, it just this book was not good. Just, just lukewarm. It was it was a lukewarm book. Yeah, I think he has committed the number one cardinal sin that will end you up, even in the bad books of Book Club from Hell, which is that he's boring. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's just it's just dull. We will not uh, be boring. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> in fact, I hope that. You will instead of reading the original Call of the Crocodile, you just listen to us instead. You'll have a lot more fun, um, and you'll the get problem the is we've, high level idea. We've of both the proven is, ourselves to be really, really unreliable when it comes to things being true or not. So, <laughs> yeah, people could listen to us recount the plot of Call of the Crocodile. They just have to bear in mind that we might make things up. Yeah, well, this will we be are, an embellished no, recounting no, 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 of the no, no. book. It's called academic freedom, and we are the internet's foremost <laughs> anthropologists. On strange. Literature. I have tenure. They can't get rid of me. Yeah, we have ten- tenure on our own podcast. <laughs> we both have tenure on Book Club from Hell. This is our classroom. Yeah, so he's got a he's got a full series. So let me see. There's a thirteen books in the series. Is it books in this series? Thirteen. So. Call of the Crocodile. Call, Call of the Arcade. Call of the Kappa. Call of the Cherokee. Call of the Cradle. Hunger of the Kangaroo. Reptilian Odyssey. <laughs> <laughs> wait, 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 wait. What's Hunger of the Kangaroo about? Uh, hold on, I'll get that in you. <laughs> it's got a really funny... T- so, 
uh, I, I do actually really like his covers. I'll give him that. I hope he's making the them himself. Drawing. Yeah, the chalkboard. Then uh, uh, Jigoku <laughs> Ouroboros. <laughs> it's so funny, hey? He's got his little knife and fork. Um, oh, no, it's a fork and a spoon. You call that a knife? That's a spoon. Um, Ouroboros, Limbo's Rainbow. He's really obsessed with... Uh, well, we'll get into that. He he's referencing yeah. certain things quite a lot. Call of F Gardner. What? That's super meta. He's got a book <laughs> called Call of F Gardner, and he's put himself on. He's put himself on the cover. That's so funny. Oh, dude, <laughs> check out that one. So the right. So Call of F Gardner. He proudly says was written in eight days. Horrors call and Call of the Machine Elves. Okay, if we're going to do another F Gardner at any point. I would no, be please not. Uh, uh, there's Call of the Machine Elves. I might do that. I might do Hunger of the Kangaroos, but I might also be open to doing um, Call of F Gardener because I think something that meta would be really <laughs> funny. <laughs> See what it's actually Look, like. If this episode is popular enough, then maybe I would consider doing F Gardener again. But it would need to be really popular for me to read more F Gardener. Yeah. So. Uh, Get on the Discord if you guys like this and tell us to do more F. Gardner. He has this very strange writing style where he seems to forget what he's already written. even Not even within the same chapter or within the same paragraph, but sometimes within the same sentence, he'll just start repeating himself. And he'll say the same thing over and over again, not even in different ways, but sometimes in just the same way. I'll give I've got plenty of examples of this. We'll we'll read through them as as we recount the plot of the book. It's a very off-putting style. Yeah. So, how do you want to structure this? Should we just go chapter by chapter or should we do a uh high-level narrative roughly speaking, give the don't bury the lead too much unlike our SE5 episode where we fucking buried it like an hour deep. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, reckon? let's just go through the plot of the book. It's we'll, give, we'll give the Wikipedia plot summary yeah, plus nice. a running commentary. So, Call of the Crocodile. The opening premise, and I, uh, I'll highlight the opening. The opening yeah, read premise. the blurb. <laughs> Do I even have the blurb? I don't I've know. got it here. I don't have the blurb on the The key. blurb is a dark fantasy horror novel set during Halloween. After a boy is eaten alive by a crocodile, his family begins a descent into madness and terror in this odyssey of modern horror. He's done a wonderful job of catfishing the shit out of his own book. <laughs> the, the crocodile actually isn't that important in the book. It doesn't really come up much. Yeah, it's a red herring. It's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so my, my first note... In the notes I took on this book, chapter one, child's play, is he doesn't understand how to use apostrophes. And that was a consistent problem throughout this entire book. He just did not know how to use apostrophes. (laughs) (laughs) Which is like, it's 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 a petty thing to complain about, but after a while, it just gets really irritating when someone consistently gets it wrong. (laughs) Yeah, he... He uh, uses apostrophes on plurals, or just all over the place. And it, 
I couldn't pick out a pattern with his strange apostrophes. It just seems like he uses them randomly. Sometimes it'll be correct. It's pretty interesting but, to be a famous author with a massive YouTube channel and not know how to use apostrophes. <laughs> and look, I love abonics, so I don't necessarily think that there is a correct way to communicate. But certainly if you're going to communicate in a way that doesn't, it is not normal or not mainstream or whatever, uh, at least do it consistently. <laughs> you know, yeah, make the mistake consistently. <laughs> just get it wrong consistently then. Yeah, because at least then people like be able to figure out what you're trying to do and adjust, <laughs> you know, but if you are just, if it's just pure noise, <laughs> your reader can't keep up. <laughs> F Gardner. Yeah, this, this first chapter, Child's Play, introduces some of the characters and it takes place in this um it's in a it's it's some theme park and resort inside a giant church and one of the characters Pete who's a boy is with his dad Joe and his brothers Jimmy and Rafe I don't know if I'm pronouncing Raph, Rafe's name as right, in Raphael Raph and he's Raphael. named after the famous author slash the ninja turtle yeah the ninja turtle Raph I would name yeah. the kid Raphael. I think it's a sick name. Well, not now. Now F. Gardner's fucking ruined Raphael for my son. <laughs> <laughs> you will now be Donatello. So what, what F. Gardner keeps doing is he keeps kind of... He keeps foreshadowing things and referencing things that will happen later in the book, but there's no underlying th- theme I can really get from it they just seem like meaningless repeating images so the book starts out with with pete playing some sort of vr game and shooting a crocodile monster with his riffle <laughs> r-i-double-f-l-e which i'm assuming is some sort of relative of the rifle and then it stops and later in the book it's one of those guns that just shoots confetti the, at the end <laughs> yeah exactly it's a nerf gun it's a nerf rifle <laughs> Later in the book, just, someone fights a crocodile monster. I think it's Joe. And it's this scene is sort of foreshadowing that, but I'm not sure why. It seems like he's almost he's using all of these literary devices like illusion, foreshadowing, but I'm not actually sure what he's using them for. Just because there are literary tools available to you doesn't mean you should just use them unless... There's a point. I mean, do I, do I need to explain that? Or so I'll say. Long time listeners of this show, shout out KL, shout out Keon, <laughs> shout out the rest of the Discord. Uh, long time listeners whose names change Heilig. so often that I yeah, just I love it. I love Heilig. how much Heilig changed his name is so fucking good. Spiritual <laughs> so fuckboy. Yeah, spiritual fuckboy is a good one. The preacher. He's had some bangers. I wish that he'd recorded like all of his name changes. He's, he's got great ones. I think the preacher's Trent or the, oh, yeah, the, the user formerly known teachers. as Trent. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, faceless pseudonymous internet friends for keeping us Cryo, who's a fellow disciple of the bloat lord. Uh, do you reckon Cryo's into powerlifting then? The bloat lord. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's a significant crossover between people who are gym rats and people who know who Kyriakos Grizzly is. So, yeah, I'd say there's a strong probability that Kyriakos spends too much time in the gym. That's so funny. Good on him. Um, 
yeah, so another anyways, what was I saying? Um Oh yeah, so sometimes we make reference to our authors, you know, being in like a math exam and they've sort of like gotten the right answer in some capacity, but their working out is wrong. <laughs> so they lose points on 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 their working. Imagine like let's transpose that analogy to English literature. This is that kid in class who on his high school certificate to go well in English literature just memorized every single literary technique one can use and then just tried to smash it into their short story on the final <laughs> exam. <laughs> That's what F. Gardner's done. Sense. <laughs> He's someone who's certainly very fond of a whole number of things. It's particularly illusion he likes. He will just keep bringing up things like Dante's Inferno or other books that are prestigious to have pretended to have read. But those illusions don't add anything. It's just noise. He does that a lot. Or maybe the the, the richness of his elusiveness to the Divine Comedy went straight over my head because I got halfway through it and realised that I just don't like poetry and couldn't keep going. <laughs> um, I will caveat this, but I don't want to spoil the twist. So we should also give people a... There's a big twist. There's a big M. Night Shyamalan oh, no, level twist. Fuck that. that was... And I don't want to spoil it. I don't want to spoil it. And genuinely, when we get up to the point where we're point, we should say, hey, like, plot twist spoiler. Because people, hypothetically, might... There might be somebody out there who will actually go and read it. <laughs> and doesn't want it spoiled. <laughs> it's fucking horrible, though. But there is a caveat to that, and we'll come back to that when we get up to uh, chapter 15. <laughs> Shouldn't we just say that this entire podcast will be spoilers, though? We're, we're going to be going through the plot of this book. If you if you truly are wanting to read we'll, we'll give Call you of warning. the Crocodile by we'll F. Gardner and want to go in blind, then stop listening, read it, Come back and listen to this episode. And since you will know the text too, the richness of our textual understanding and our unpacking of the themes of this book will mean that much more to you. Yeah. I listened to it. Um, and I actually. <laughs> Is there an audio book? No, there's a dude on YouTube who recorded a full five and a half hour reading of it. And he actually did a really good job. <laughs> yeah it, it he actually listening to that guy read the book is was more enjoyable than reading the book itself for sure I, I can imagine you wouldn't see the strange formatting yeah i guess that's an issue unless he read it in a way to convey the strange formatting no and he actually like changed his voice and stuff um so it was actually fairly engaging the guy's really quite a good reader <laughs> he should not read <laughs> f gardner's stuff um yeah. <laughs> that's where the views are yeah yeah that's where the views are um and one of the other things that f gardner does is of all the literary techniques is he'll just keep on hammering on the symbolism yeah so it's like oh this thing looks there's like this snake in this painting uh a snake is like a crocodile it's a reptile and then oh that reminds me of like this turtle that we used to own oh turtle reminds me of reptiles and reptiles remind me of crocodiles (laughs) like did it so many fucking times it was ridiculous he doesn't really trust the reader to draw any of their own inferences from even the most heavy-handed symbolism he assumes that everyone reading is a fucking idiot 
Yeah. And just <laughs> won't understand the significance of... It's even something like, oh, there'll be a, a clock in the shape of a crocodile and he'll feel the need to explain to the reader why some character who knows someone who got eaten by a crocodile would be unsettled by that. Yeah. <laughs> or how he'll... Regularly, he'll bring up something and then go off on a page-long discursion telling you about what that thing is and why it's significant. <laughs> he is the definition of show, don't tell, as in he needs to do show, don't tell. There's this one basic tip about like not beating if you're writing fiction. And look, I'm not a fiction writer, obviously, but in my small amount of like short stories and stuff that I wrote when I was younger, trying not to to browbeat the reader with uh, his exactly what I mean. <laughs> you know, you need to be a bit more subtle than that. <laughs> like the guy literally explains like every reference he makes. <laughs> in fact, there's, <laughs> there's, an early, <laughs> there's an early one. I'll see if I can find it. Uh, How about how about I open up with a quote from chapter two, Dawn. The first chapter set at that Halloween theme park in a church ends with Pete, one of the children, walking off. And plot twist, he gets eaten by a crocodile. <laughs> Just the conceit of this story. Some little kid gets eaten by a crocodile. And that does happen park. in Florida. I, there's, I, there's when I first read that, I thought that this book was going to be funny because, because I find that it's such an absurd premise that I thought it was going to be a comedy book. But no, he, he plays the child getting eaten by a crocodile at a theme park of really June, straight. 15th of June, 2016. Uh a two-year-old boy pulled by an alligator into a lagoon near a Walt Disney World hotel has been found dead, authorities said. So, it's very conceivable. It can happen. It does happen. It happened and it started this, it inspired this book. <laughs> there we go. Well, this book tackles several weighty societal themes. Obviously, one of those themes are not just crocodile attacks, because alligators can do it too, but maybe crocodilian Attacks on children. <laughs> One of the most pressing issues of our time. <laughs> so, I'll... Um, the, the scourge of crocodiles <laughs> eating children all across I'll, Northern Territory. I'll open, up, I'll open with a quote from the beginning of Chapter 2, Dawn, which is describing Pete's... Wait, not Pete's, Joe's strange dream. So Joe is the father of Pete, the boy who was eaten by a crocodile. And this chapter takes place a year after Pete was eaten by a crocodile. Dreams are nothing more than a series of images projected by the subconscious. Joe had known that. The human mind strings the dreamt visions together in a narrative, even if the images don't necessarily go together. That's simply how our minds operate. Like a child playing a game of ad-libs, trying his or her best to make sense out of the hand they've been dealt. Figments, which seem like phantoms in the night, but they're merely phantasms. Figments, with an apostrophe. Maybe when there's an apostrophe that's not meant to be there, I'll just read it as, instead of figments, as figment is of one's imagination. Like an hallucination brought on as a result of inebriation. 
like the child's play of some kid's fabrication. Joe had understood that, as he was not a superstitious man, but why did this feel like more than a mere dream? Almost more real than his waking moments. Do animals dream the same? Sequentially? Joe did not know. However, he felt as if he were now fated to find out whether he wanted to or not. More than that, Joe was beginning to feel like Sisyphus, the character found in Greek mythology, the one who had been condemned to eternally push a boulder up a hill, only to have it roll back down repeatedly, as if he were in Tartarus, the Greek term for the abyss. It had begun to feel all too familiar, too real for a dream. This quote's good because... It's actually the quote that I wanted to read. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. It's the perfect quote for just summing up F. Gardner. It starts out with some, some discussion of... Uh, um, what what are dreams? I'll say some sort of conceptual discussion which doesn't really go anywhere and just repeats itself. And then he'll start referencing Greek mythology or something like that and over-explain everything. So say you invoke Sisyphus. You can just say that something is Sisyphean and leave it at that. Many readers will know the story of Sisyphus and if they don't, they're perfectly capable of just looking it up on Google. Yeah, it's a, it's weird because he makes these references, say, to Greek. Well, in this case, Greek, and it's a Dante's was written in Latin, but right, I don't know. It was oh, uh, Dante's Inferno was written in Italian. It's in Italian, right? Important because it was yeah, it's one of the first big works like that that was not written in Latin. Okay, so like long story short. He makes a lot of references, but he explains his references. And that's the weird part. Is like It's even better than referencing. It's just it's make the reference. <laughs> make the reference. That's it. Leave it at that. No, this is this is citation two point zero. This is F Gardner citation. So do you think I didn't watch any of his videos. Did you watch his videos? Yeah, I've watched a bunch of them. They're really good. What's he like as a person? Does he seem well? You know, on camera, obviously, but like, what does he seem like? Does he, it, I would. I'm going to guess that he like seems the like the sort a, of person who'd write "Call of the Crocodile." Okay. <laughs> I recommend his YouTube channel. I'll put it. I'll put it in the show notes for this episode so that people can have easy access to it. Okay, I'm gonna. I'm gonna listen to his channel. Um. Anyways, yeah, he explains everything. Um. Yeah. So the quote I read out earlier was referencing a dream that Joe had where Joe is some sort of crocodile monster and goes into a courtyard full of children and eats a child. And and then Joe wakes up and because his son a year ago had been eaten by a crocodile, he's very upset by this. And F. Gardner makes sure to tell you that Joe is upset by it and why Joe is upset by it. Even though... Again, it's like most readers would probably be able to put two and two together that yeah. if a father had his son eaten by a crocodile, then he's going to be disturbed by a dream where he's a crocodile monster and <laughs> starts eating children. <laughs> but yeah, that's, uh, that's the way things go with this guy. There are some other good quotes from this chapter. He starts talking about Dante's Inferno here as well. The Dante's Inferno references start early, and never really let up. (laughs) (laughs) 
So, I, I quote, At last, Joe's eyes open as the man awakens in his bed. The first thing he hears upon waking was the ticking of the grandfather clock in the room. Relieved the nightmare was over, Joe attempts to calm his heart rate by breathing slowly. The sweat drips down his forehead in unison with the infernal ticking. The word resonates within the man as Joe reflects on the matter, about how it aptly describes his feelings, infernal, as in the word inferno, the chapter from Dante's Divine Comedy. If the rest of his life is anything like that story, he can only hope that the subsequent chapters sync up as well, Purgatorio, and then finally, Paradiso. Purgatory and Paradise. Joe and his family, whole once more, together in Elysian peace. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, I don't want this to turn this into one of those episodes where we just shit on something and don't... Don't try to be generous. It's just... The author makes it really hard. Yeah. <clears throat> he hits you over the head unnecessarily. <laughs> then I've, I've only... I've, I've got one final quote from here that I think sums up his strange habit in prose of repeating himself. It's almost as if he's just forgotten what he's written. I'm almost certain this just wasn't edited. Even by him, he didn't, go, he didn't read through it after he'd finished his very first draft. Yeah, you are. So here's a quote. You've, you've written a book now and you can, you can see the difference between iterations, right? And you don't think there's yeah, any Yeah, like 80% of the work comes yeah. after writing your first draft. There you go. And you, can, and you don't reckon he, uh, he did any iterations? I mean, I kind of hope he didn't because if he did iterations, it mean he, means he looked at this stuff and went, yeah, that's... That's what I want to say. <laughs> That's better than the previous one. <laughs> for, for example, so his, his repeating of things that, he's, that, that are just obvious. I, I, here's a quote. This has gone on long enough, thought Joe. I have to get ready to start my day. The man looks out of his window and glances at the morning sun. The sun was in the midst of rising. Joe can take solace, knowing that nightmares will haunt him no more, at least not till the next night, for the day had officially begun. He tells you three times that it's morning and the sun's rising. It's like, yeah, dude, I know, you told me. It's so funny. Uh, I didn't like it when I was reading it, but he- <laughs> hearing you talk about it is really funny. <laughs> I don't know, man. That's the way with most of our episodes, though, is that I don't like reading it, but it's funny to talk about. It's funny to talk about. And you guys are getting snippets like the isolated chunks of, uh, of the, the highlight reel <laughs> of, of the horror, horror of this book, but it's truly... a yeah. Incredibly boring read. Like to get to those little weird bits is just such a trek. <laughs> well, the thing is, it's like with actually in many of the episodes we've noted this. It's funny when you hear little snippets of it in isolation. But the thing is, when you're immersed in something this strange for 200 pages, it very quickly just yeah. becomes normal. You acclimatize to it. And in becoming normal, it becomes boring. Yeah. 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 Well, I found it boring from the very beginning. <laughs> his, uh, his characters, his characters, like the dialogue is fucking ridiculous. It's so bad. It is. It's incredible. 
but especially the early dialogue it's towards the end it gets a bit better but like early on he doesn't like the dialogue of different people different characters in principle should say the way they speak should be part of their character early on the the, each character just talks the same <laughs> essentially uh, yeah they all they're all yeah. f gardener yeah they're all f gardener <laughs> especially i especially like the children talking to each other over lunch about quantum field theory and i i feel like we need a game of of book club from hell bingo the things that just keep coming up in books that we read quantum field theory comes up all the time Race mixing comes up all the time. That is a that's actually a compliment I will pay F. Gardner in the context of this podcast is he didn't talk about race mixing. And I'm really misogynation. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so fucking talk, sick of opening up one of the books that we're meant to read and they'll start talking about race mixing. Even in places where you don't expect it, like the the beginning was the end. I didn't expect a discussion on race mixing, but he sucker punched me with that. <laughs> I was totally expecting it. I was like, a book about evolution? Nah, it'll be really racist. <laughs> <laughs> no, I expected it to be racist. I just didn't expect the um the 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 monkey with the superpower of being able to race mix to go around raping monkeys of different races to make human offspring. Anyway, if people want to hear more about this, listen to that's a banger. I thought that episode was really end. funny. Yeah, go listen to that one. <laughs> But also listen to this one. We yeah, yeah, yeah. listen to it after you've listened to this one. Yeah, Or listen to both yeah. in parallel. Yeah, listen to all our episodes in parallel and take acid. Repeatedly. And then don't tell the police it was our idea when you did it. <laughs> Is what I would say if I were an irresponsible person. <laughs> but I'm not no, we- saying that. <laughs> Given that we're hosting a podcast where we <laughs> seek out <laughs> these sorts of books, we can be nothing but responsible. Yes. Well, we're we're doing a public service. We're protecting people from these books. <laughs> yeah. We we read Varg Smile, so you don't have to. Um, shall we move on? What are we up to? Three or four? Chapter three. three trepidation. And oh man, and this is with his psychiatrist. And now that I know where the psychiatrist's name comes from, I hate this scene even more. Yeah, <sighs> his psychiatrist, Doctor Boltzmann. For any of you mm. physics nerds out there, you might pick up on that one. He's a he's foreshadowing what happens later in the uh, in the book. <laughs> this is a literary device. Fucking the thing can't. is, though, he's foreshadowing, <laughs> but I don't. It's not for anything because the reader just doesn't know what. The reader has no context. This this is this won't mean anything to the reader until later, and then even Unless later when you know the connection, it, it doesn't times mean anything. For some reason, could you maybe there's some huge F Gardner fan out there who's <laughs> who's who's read this like three times. <laughs> <laughs> it's a book that rewards rereading. Anyway, this chapter, Joe's seeing his psychiatrist that he's seeing because his his child got eaten by a crocodile, which, yeah, that's that's going to traumatise you. So at least that that aspect of this is believable. But the dialogue between these two is, should we read is some? really should something we, should else. Should we do some role play, Jack? Oh, yeah. Who do you want to be? Right. And 
I reckon you've got a good psychiatrist voice. Hey. <laughs> okay. I did. A, be, I did a psych be, rotation. So. Yeah, you did. Um. I'll be. Joe. Should we? Who's how, how should the, we do this who's the narrator? Who's the narrator? Um. <clears throat> we need Edward. Edward could be the narrator. Actually, that's an interesting. <laughs> that's a good point. Maybe if we do a live reading sometime with Ed, he can like we can have we'll have three different voices for the for the, <laughs> the staging. Um, I don't know. Fucking who cares? <laughs> okay, I'll I'll narrate. Do you want to go from a particular Dr. point? Doctor Boltzmann. The... Yeah, you you narrate. I've me, got Dr. Boltzmann. So so my quote begins: sitting in an office of modest size. Okay. Oh, so the beginning of the chapter. <laughs> yeah. Sitting in an office of office room of modest size, Joe finds himself with an appointment with his doctor. His psychiatrist, Dr. Boltzmann, remains composed with a notepad while Joe rests on a couch. In a state of unease, the dishevelled-looking man clears his throat and begins to discuss his plight. Feels like... Feels like I'm in hell. Joe says... What was that? His doctor asks. I said, I said it feels like I'm in hell. Joe repeated blankly. Or at least purgatory. He continued. Do you believe in hell? Joe asks of his physician. I'm not sure if I do, Joe. I'm not sure if I do. Sorry. (laughs) You talked to Boltzmann as well. (laughs) I'm going like full uh, Keanu, Kanya, Kanya Reeves in a... That movie where he shoots everyone, John Wick. That's what I'm channeling right now is John Wick. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if I do, Joe. I try not to dwell too much, worrying about the conditions of the hereafter. The reputable hereafter, that is. The doctor answers, scribbling away in his notepad. I see. I guess I guess it seems you're at the very least a sceptic. Joe inquires. How can I not be? I specialise in the field of medicine and the study of the mind. My chosen career, naturally, makes me question things. It tends to be invariable in my profession, or at least to an extent, Dr. Boltzmann says. Chosen? So you don't believe in fate at all? You mean like what men of the cloth refer to as, as a calling? Joe asks. I wouldn't necessarily say... I, ne- I, I wouldn't say... I necessarily do. But if I did, though, I'm not certain it's relevant, if I'm to be entirely honest with you. <laughs> that's, that's the end of what I've written down as a quote. I think we did a much better job than F. Gardner. It sounds better when we do it than it reads. <laughs> you also don't see the weird punctuation. He uses commas really strangely. Most of the time when he says someone's name, he'll just put a comma after it and it makes it feel really weird to read. The rhythm of the the prose is yeah, all like off. Joe inquires. Of it. It's like Joe, comma, inquires. Inquires. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, one of the rules for, for using commas is like breaking up subclauses. <laughs> it's like that is not... Joe inquires. There are no subclauses. That's that's a unit of uh, that's like a linguistic unit that doesn't need to be broken up. Why is he broken it up? Like neither of those two words by themselves in that context would make any sense. <laughs> well, he's an advanced comma user. 
<laughs> uh, maybe I just suck at English. He's a power user of commas. <laughs> anyway, so he basically... I don't even... I'm not entirely sure what the point of this goddamn chapter is. But he's basically having a conversation about his troubles with his psychiatrist um, and talking about yeah. his, his and, dreams. And his dreams nightmares. of being a crocodile monster. A crocodile monster that eats his own... He has nightmares about eating his own sons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and he talks about how he's not taking his SSRIs regularly and is just drinking a ton instead. And it's Joe drinking tons to deal with the trauma of his son's devourment by a crocodile is a really heavy-handed plot point for about a chapter or two. As in F. Gardner will just bring up that Joe's getting on the source all the time because of, of Pete's death. But then he just seems to forget about it and it just disappears that Joe's a, a relentless daydream. <laughs> I also like to say he keeps switching between the present and past tense and it doesn't make sense. Oh, yeah, I noticed that as well. It's really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah uh... Was there anything other? Oh, he makes, he makes a bunch of really dumb references to Captain Hook. And Peter Pan and stuff. Oh, there is some. Oh, yeah, fuck. So he, throughout the book, he just keeps referencing Peter Pan, the Phantom of the Opera, and um, and uh, I'll, uh, I'll read a quote. It's it's pretty good. He knew that drinking wasn't the answer, but at least it seemed to dull his torment. I can still picture it, like it's burned into the back of my eyelids. Joe thinks. The man remembered back when he found one little remains for his son. So it's funny. I really, I found this part really funny. The eyeless skull. Eyes plucked right out. <laughs> he turns his attention once more to the bottle and takes a large gulp. Joe closes his eyes and rests his head back down on his pillow. Seemingly mocking him, the grandfather clock in his room strikes midnight. It was officially now October 31st, the day he dreaded most. Joe used to love Halloween as a kid growing up. It always seemed harmless, a carefree day children spent having fun. Now, as a grown man, he'll, ever, he'll forevermore associate with tragedy. With the day, his youngest son was viciously taken from him. The hand of the grandfather clock continued to tick away. Even the incessant ticking of the clock reminded him of his son's death. Like that story in Peter Pan. How the villain in the story, Captain Hook, would panic and freak out every time he heard the ticking of a clock, since a crocodile had eaten his hand with his watch on it. So, Joe, why does he put why does he put a comma there? <laughs> Joe, <laughs> Joe, Joe comma. so Joe, comma, had also realised the cruel irony that his dead son's name was Pete. <laughs> furthermore, furthermore, the name of one of his two surviving sons was Jimmy. A coincidence, honestly, it didn't occur to him till after the incident. Jimmy, Jim, Jimmy, which his son went by was short for James. Captain Hook's name was James Hook. <laughs> he and his late wife had known of the vague connection, but now the matter just felt so strange. It's just like he, he had to ham it in there. Jimmy, James, James Hook. <laughs> That's also Peter Pan. Peter Pan has a crocodile. I've got this exact quote written down. <laughs> when, when he, when I, 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 was, I was just like, is this going to stop? Is he going to do this for the entire fucking book? <laughs> and yeah, he does. 
the whole book is like this. In terms of his weird formatting, and why I don't think this even had one edit done, he there's a quote here where he spells roller coaster in three different ways in one paragraph. He's talking about Joe's emotional turmoil. He had heard of people describing the loss of a loved one as feeling like being on a roller coaster. It's not, though. A lot of people can't comprehend what it's actually like. It's not like being on a roller coaster, watching life unfold. It's like being the roller coaster and not knowing what a roller coaster even is or what on earth is going on. And just just spell roller coaster in one way. In this, it's spelt as two words, one word, or two words hyphenated. One after the other. I'm fairly tolerant when people will make spelling mistakes or grammatical errors or might mispunctuate if it's a one-off. But with this guy, it's just he can't make his mind up about how he's going to write anything. So he just does everything at once and it's really, really confusing. I would say that... What's the, what's the, what's the word for it? Like... Finesse. He lacks finesse, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes, he does. Because there's a reason why these literary techniques are a part of the way people write, because they work under certain circumstances and when executed with finesse and taste, neither of which yes. F. Gardner has. <laughs> well, they're tools and you need... You use tools to solve certain problems, but so what problem? Just so what problem? Needed. So what problem do you think F. Gardner is trying to solve? Say with uh, the one that you just read, the roller coaster one. <laughs> what was well, he trying to do? He's not there? using. Well, it's it's a metaphor of being on a roller coaster. <laughs> I think if he just said something to the effect of Joe felt like he was on an emotional roller coaster then in that case, the literary technique of a metaphor would work fine. The issue is he, he'll say it and then explain it. Everything will be over-explained because he doesn't trust his readers to pick up, upon, to pick up on his advanced-level literary skills without him explicitly saying that, that he's doing something very clever. I really want to read his other books. I want to read at least one of his other books to see if he improves <sighs> over time. Like maybe if one of his books is like much more like recent, that would. How about we be... read Call of F Gardner, which was written in eight days? Yeah, it might have been like that. Uh, what was that book that was written by? Was it Mark Twain or somebody punched it out in like a week and it became a classic? It was one of the American authors that you like. Hemingway. Oh, there Hemingway, are a bunch like, people like that. I think pumped out. Pumped I think out this... Faulkner wrote As I Lay Dying yes, was... in two weeks while he was working yeah, as a coal was... miner or something. That's the one. That's the one. It was that one you were talking about. Yeah, he might be like Faulkner. <laughs> he, he's exactly like Faulkner. He's exactly like one of my favourite authors. <laughs> His prose style. Now, oh, Call of the Machine Elves was released on uh, the 9th of November, 2022. So maybe we should read Call of the Machine Elves because that's the most recent. And there might be that's a gonna market be about improvement. DMT. It's a after a day of senseless bloodshed and madness, a kindergartner is concerned that his reality is becoming a living nightmare. Because he's been just hitting he's been huffing DMT. DMT. <laughs> it, it turned out it was actually uh, that uh, that 
other version of it the was it five meo <laughs> five meo five me one that's like breathing nightmare pure nightmare <laughs> yeah it sounds really bad but still if someone offered it to me well you never I'd say probably no to try. dmt it doesn't matter what sort of analogs it has on it <laughs> this is the dmt where you don't see anything and just fall into a nightmare hell dimension for 10 minutes <laughs> <laughs> Give it to me. Salvia? Would you do salvia? Yeah. That looks genuinely horrible. <laughs> I don't know. That I it's I've never I've never heard anything good said about salvia, but I'd still Maybe you know, with what, um Arist Aristotle said all things in moderation. And you can take all things in moderation to mean that you, know, you should moderate your appetites, or you could take it to mean all things in moderation. You should try everything, but moderately. moderately. And that's how I prefer Including DMT. to interpret Aristotle's <laughs> words. In which case, I really, I, I would have to take a moderate dose of salvia. Airtight arguments. The Aristotelian approach to intoxication. <laughs> anyway, chapter four, premonition. So Raph and Jimmy, who are... The, the two sons of Joe and the two brothers of the the now-eaten Pete are at school and it's Halloween and because because it's the anniversary of Jimmy's death, of Jimmy's death, of Pete's death, they're both feeling sad and they meet with Father O'Reilly, a priest, because they go to a Catholic school. This book deals with Christianity as well. It deals with a number of weighty topics. And Father O'Reilly basically tries to comfort the kids, but does it clumsily. And Jimmy cries. Raph is really angry. And then Father O'Reilly starts talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ, Raph goes full Reddit and starts asking about inconsistencies in the Bible in a really, really obnoxious way. He just goes full r slash atheism. Yeah, he pretty much sounds like fucking Sam Harris. <laughs> At this point, I, I started really wondering whether Raph has a katana in his bedroom. <laughs> yeah. And, oh, fuck. I've got, a, I've got a good quote here where he he brings up Occam's razor and then decides to explain it to the reader. <laughs> so this is so Father O'Reilly is talking to the boys. <laughs> I know it can be difficult to keep your faith, especially in situations such as yours, but you must try. Praying alone can work miracles. You boys need to keep that in mind. I'm not going to lie to you boys and say I have all of life's answers figured out. I don't. I may be a priest, but I'm still just a man. It may sound too simple to be true. But prayer really is the best thing to participate in right now. Sometimes the simplest solution is the best one. You mean like Occam's razor was what Raff wanted to say to him. The philosophical principle which is used by many. The idea that the belief in some kind of a supernatural power took so many jumps in logic and was therefore an exceedingly irrational conclusion to reach. Thank you, F. Gardner. This book truly is a whirlwind tour. It's educational. Philosophy it is an educational book, in fact. The, he lured you in with the promise of an engaging horror story, and then he fucking 
educated you without you're gonna you learn. Going. All of a sudden, you're like fucking epistemology, mate. Occam's razor. Yeah, I know that shit. <laughs> as far as the best O'Reilly fiction says. does. Yeah, exactly. Expands expands one's mind. Fantastic. Yeah, it was. It's really weird because I don't. Is he? Is it because he thinks his audience are idiots, or he he's trying to just like look smart or something, or he's just the bad writer, or like he doesn't know how much he can assume of his audience? I guess being being generous. I'll try to be generous. How can I be generous? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that I can be generous. Uh, hmm. He's still learning the craft, maybe. There, that's my generous interpretation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh it's it's very difficult. But I do get the impression that he's trying to show us how smart he is, and it's just obnoxious. It's just really irritating. Yeah, I I, I would I would agree. Yeah, and then Father O'Reilly starts talking about Satan. And says that, that Satan could take a reptilian form like a crocodile. And, and so the boys go home and see their dad out the front gardening. And this is, this is still in the period or the part of the book where Joe's drinking is a, is a theme that's brought up every other paragraph. And I've got a quote here. Again, he's just repeating himself. Their father, comma, was tending to his garden at the front of the house, watering the plants. The man appeared to be fairly calm as he leisurely whistled a tune. That's good to see him doing something other than drinking for a change, Raff thought to himself. Joe, his father, comma, had been hitting the liquor pretty hard ever since Peter died. Dad had taken up gardening in the past year and it comforted Raff to see that he was doing that upon returning home, as opposed to drinking away his sorrows. I guess everyone needs a hobby, and doing so must have helped take his mind off of Pete's death, he thought. What, one of the other things that I wrote down in my notes was the overbearing inner monologues that this guy inserts into, <laughs> yeah, just into the story. These, he inserts the relentless. so many inner, inner monologues. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It I guess it depends on the story. So especially if it's a if it's a story where it focuses primarily on a single character with the occasional like what was he thinking or she thinking, you know. But this is just like every character gets an inner monologue. We get to see the inside of what everybody's thinking <laughs> all the time, and it's always in a very like hit you over the head this is how we're driving the narrative forward <laughs> there's literally even a part yeah. where yep. some ghouls read one of the characters minds and the ghoul responds to it and then the guy says they must be reading my mind <laughs> it's like, fucking dude. Yeah, the characters will just make some logical leap sometimes that i just don't i don't understand how they did it I mean, of course, I'm I'm not able to suspend disbelief when I read this anyway, so I guess it doesn't make much of a difference, but it just makes it even harder to suspend disbelief. Do you think that's part of the misuse of literary techniques is if they 
essentially break the fourth wall and break you out of, you know, because good fiction, you can imagine what's happening and you do, you're able to emotionally suspend disbelief. But a, a ham job of the writing and use of literary techniques will snap you out of it, right? So at no point can you ever actually like get into what's happening in the story because he's just like fumbling it so often. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you're not really in the story. You're constantly reading F. Gardner telling you what's happening in the story and you can never get past that point, or at least I couldn't. <laughs> yeah, it's extremely meta. Yeah, fuck. It gets so much more meta later on. And <laughs> you know, it was it was it was in this chapter, chapter four, where I thought, oh fuck, he's gonna do something really meta, isn't yeah. he? And, <laughs> and, yeah. Well, I'll look I'll look for the quote where I got that sinking feeling and realized, <laughs> no, he's gonna try to break the fourth wall and I'm gonna hate it. Your heart just drops out and you're reading like, no, don't do it. I was the, I saw this Yeah, one. here we go. I didn't see exactly what happened coming, but I had a bad feeling, yeah. Yeah, the so they're, they're driving to their grandmother's place, Joe's mother's house, and they're going to spend Halloween there. While they're driving, they... It's, it's the fucking foreshadowing. So they almost run over a woman, an old woman wearing a dark cloak. And that's, like, that's going to come up later. And they're listening to a radio drama called The Phantom of Halloween. And it is ends with this plot twist of a woman reading the Phantom of Halloween to her children. And so everything before that point was a story within the story of this radio drama. When I heard that, I had a bad feeling that he was going to try to do something like this. And then this, this quote following that made me sure that I was in for some bullshit meta plot twist. So, what a strange deus ex machina ending, their father stated. It's true, they didn't know the context of the story, since they had just caught it at the end. However, the boys were familiar enough with the characters to know what they were supposed to be based off of. They were the Phantom of the Opera and Sherlock Holmes, both classic literary characters. They supposed it made sense for that sort of program to be on during All Hallows' Eve. The bizarre plot twist reminded Joe of the trick of theatre he saw earlier in the crocodile... Wait. Oh, Joe of the trick or treater he saw earlier in the crocodile costume. Must have just been a coincidence, he thought to himself. There's no way someone would do that to me on purpose. Deus ex machina, Jimmy inquires. <laughs> Jimmy, comma, inquires with a bewildered expression on his face. Momentarily taking his attention off the car's wheel, Joe glances at his son and realises Jimmy's unfamiliar with the word. Oh, it's a Latin term. It means God from the machine, like when a story has an unsolvable problem and something unexpected, like as if God himself steps in for its resolution to fix things. Like when you pray to him, the boy asks. Yes, Jimmy, Joe tells his son. It was a plot device used a lot in old plays, from my understanding. An unexpected ending, to surprise the audience. Joe continued. Oh, I see, responded Jimmy. Stories use the plot device. You, stories, yeah. Is that, no, that's not a typo. That's actually what he wrote. Stories use the plot device, usually do so to pull off a resolution to a mystery. 
Sometimes it's obvious or out of left field, unexpected. But other times they hinted at early on. And when he said this, I thought, fuck, fuck, fuck. Sometimes the, bless- the best plot mysteries are ones that the reader didn't even realise were part of the plot. As if there were no real mystery to the story they had heard all along, and it was all part of a greater one, they didn't even consider. But one that's hinted at, Jimmy turns to his father and opens his mouth as an epiphany hits him. You mean like with foreshadowing, Dad? I, j- I had such a bad feeling after reading this section. I just I, I knew he was going to try to do something metatextual and it would be awful. Rick and Morty literally just released an episode like a week ago about meta narratives and just ripping on them. It was really funny, but it was also really meta. And yeah, meta narratives and shit <laughs> can be fucked up really bad. Meta narratives can be interesting. They're just really hard to do. And if you fuck them up, it's obnoxious. It's extremely obnoxious. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Moving on. And then, oh, and then he, he, he has this whole thing where he's talking about one of the characters mentions the word behemoth. So, of course, F. Gardner needs to spend a lot of time explaining to you <laughs> what that word means. Anyway, they get to their grandmother's house and the chapter ends. We're up to chapter five, Arrival. And okay, so the start of this chapter, I thought was actually all right. There's a scene in this, I think it's in this chapter, where Raph finds his grandmother that was, that was good. I liked it. Yeah, it actually starts getting like a exorcist sort of vibes. This is actually where it starts getting scary. Well, you know, not, not scary, but the horror themes start coming in. <laughs> he he never settles down on one theme or one like thing that's going to carry the the rest of the story. Yeah. He just keeps changing it up. This bit gets kind of exorcist and then it changes almost into Nightmare, Nightmare on Elm Street. Street with some yeah. some spirit invading their dreams and then it We'll we'll get to it when we get to it. He he keeps changing and he won't settle down on one thing. Yeah, that that is a good point actually. He and one <clears throat> he's also stealing stuff from other. Uh, it's not not original. But then again, I I've got a caveat coming up later when we get to the twist, so I won't criticize him too harshly for that. So they they find the door of their grandmother's house unlocked, and they walk in, and it's strangely humid inside but this humidity and the strange warmth inside recedes quickly and so they start looking around their grandmother's house or joe's mum's house to try to find her and they're calling out her name and she's not answering for some reason because of this raf and jimmy decide to play hide and seek which is another recurring theme i guess you call it a theme in that he just keeps talking about or comparing things in the book to hide and seek, but I'm not sure what point he's trying to make by comparing everything to hide and seek. We're also introduced to well, it comes Raph's later. Yeah, to to, to Raph and Jimmy's grandfather. So Raph is his full name's Raphael, and his grandfather's name is. Raul. It's a Spanish equivalent, I suppose. So so Raph's 
kind of named after him. But then he gets teased. And of course, again, F. Gardner needs to explain to you the biblical origin of the name Raphael. And it's just, and the fact it's just that obnoxious. It's, it's, also, it's also a reference to the artist. I think he explains every single part of it. <laughs> the artist. Yep. The, and then he the, explains to you that it has nothing to do turtles. with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah. And the Bible. It's like, thanks, mate. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. So they're playing hide and seek. Raph can't find Jimmy, but finds he goes into his grandma's room. And this, I'll, I'll read a quote. This part was good. I liked it. This was maybe two paragraphs of the book that I liked. <laughs> be cool, be cool. So, once Raf turned on the lights, the boy's eyes quickly darted over to the corner of the room at an alarming sight. And I, th- I think sight is spelled S-I-T-E, but okay, fine. Grandma, the boy called out. She was across the room, sitting in the top cabinet of one of the drawers. Raph received no response from her. She didn't even turn her head to acknowledge his presence. Instead, the old woman lowered herself further down into the shelf. As if in a trance, she began contorting her body like that of a rag doll's. She twisted her torso till she was able to lower herself as far into the shelf as possible, akin to someone jamming clothes into an overstuffed shelf. With only her hand reaching out of the drawer, the elderly woman stretched her arm outward and inexplicably closed the shelf of the drawer with herself still inside. I quite, I liked the image. I thought it was unsettling. It's hard to explain. And so I, at this point, I got a little bit more hopeful. Okay, maybe the start was a bit wobbly, but now he's, he's settled into some unsettling images that he could really work with. But then he just kind of lets this go and moves on to other stuff, which isn't nearly as effective. Yeah. Yeah. Similar thing happens with his his brother. And then it and then it turns out, well, you know, spot spot uh plot plot twist. <clears throat> it wasn't really them. What was it? We don't know. Uh a ghost or an apparition of some sort. But he finds his grandmother and his his uh his dad and his other brother. Yeah. And they're, they're not contorted and twisted into a drawer. Should we jump towards the dream sequence? Because that's probably where it starts. Or do you have something pre? Yeah, everyone, they have dinner. They prepare for bed. It's noted that the grandmother, Eve, has shingles. And then she... I'm not sure if it's a dream. I think it's a dream. She turns into a crocodile monster in her dream. I'm not entirely sure if that was a dream either. I think it must be, right? And the thing is, again, it with these sort of literary devices, so making it unclear if something happened or not, it can be a highly effective literary device, and it's been used to great effect. In other books, it's just he handles it a bit clumsily. So instead of being confusing in an engaging way, it's confusing in an irritating way. Yeah. A really famous example, say, so this he's just about to get into the dream sequence, basically. So maybe the crocodile grandmother was a part of the dream. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. Um, but Jimmy goes into a dream sequence, and uh, they all go into this weird dream sequence, which we can, uh, which we'll talk about in more detail. But just before we do, I guess the issue is like a dream sequence. I think you've got to be careful with, personally. Uh, 
a really famous example of one that obviously did really well and became like a massive cultural phenomenon was uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. And it does work yeah. occasionally, but because it's there's a real risk and and I'm going to flag that this will be doubly the point later in the book, but there's a real risk when you do something <laughs> like that that you that you completely deflate the story because none of the things that were happening ever had any risk and doesn't really yeah. drive drive the story and it can just take it just like it feels like you've wasted wasted people's time um so you you do have to be careful that's what one of the reasons why like i think nightmare on elm street was such a clever book about it like you die in your sleep you die in real life um and that sort of stuff is real world consequences of a dream you know um which is quite an interesting thing uh yeah so that's all that's all i'm gonna say he took it. He took a punt. I think he missed. <laughs> he's <laughs> he's playing with fire. Many punts. He's an inveterate <laughs> punter, at least in this book. So I, I guess the way I'd say is like some literary techniques are high risk, high reward. Some are a little bit safer, and they'll get the job done. I think this is a high risk, high reward technique, and F. Gardner needs to keep on practicing. I, but I, you know what, Jack? I reckon he probably has been practicing. What's the bet that in all of his other books, there's fucking dream sequences? <laughs> That's what I'm concerned about when you talk about reading another book of his, that it's just going to be the same. But maybe maybe he's reflected. Maybe he'll listen to this episode and decide that, given that two very famous and competent literary critics have offered this advice to him. The internet's foremost anthropologists. The internet's foremost literary critics. The best yeah. literary critics in the world, PhD probably in history. In- Bro science specializing in obscene literature. <laughs> We've both won Nobel Prizes in literature. We know what we're talking both. about. Twice. We've both won them both. twice. Multiple times. <laughs> I've got I've got so many. When they call me up now to tell me that I've won, I just hang up. Say, look, I don't have any space left in, <laughs> in my the, house. I don't have space anywhere. Sure. It's just full of Nobel Prize. The entire my house is unusable because its entire (laughs) interior is full of Nobel prizes. There is no space for a person. There's no space for another Nobel Prize, let alone a person. They've ruined my life. I'm homeless. (laughs) I can't use my house because of the number of Nobel prizes in there. (laughs) Just they're killing me. (laughs) It's 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 a it's a burden being this brilliant. (laughs) see <laughs> f gardner you've got someone to aspire to jack <laughs> i've been made homeless because i've won so many how, Nobel prizes. how many literary prizes you've won it's so funny <laughs> oh no it's not just in literature i win all of them in physics chemistry medicine physiology just all economics i even accept peace prizes i think they're a bit silly but you know a prize is a prize. <laughs> I do get that prize money. I, I need to live. I mean, hotel fees because I can't use my house because it's full of Nobel prizes are pretty high. So I only live off the prize money. That and and my my very very expensive cocaine habit. <laughs> anyway, enough about me. Um, and my my, my non non fictional life. 
where I'm I'm showered with with praise and admiration. <laughs> where were we up to? Oh yeah, so um, the grandma turns into a crocodile monster. The scene where he describes her transformation into a crocodile monster was was pretty good. It's gross. She she bursts out in sores and her eyes almost pop out of her head and her tongue gets really big um, and she grows big teeth. Yeah, so that, that wasn't bad. Chapter 7 is called Nightmare and um, Jimmy's dreaming of playing hide-and-seek. And, oh, wait, wait, wait. So some shadowy apparition enters the house and visits Jimmy's room and jumps into Jimmy's dreams. So this is where it goes, Nightmare on Elm Street. The problem is, so it was back to what you were saying before about why, about how the dream sequences in Nightmare on Elm Street work really well because there's a sense of danger. And that movie, I saw, I saw that one ages ago. I don't remember the plot that clearly. But pretty quickly it's established that you can, if you die in your dreams, at least when Freddy Krueger's around, you die in real life. So from very early on, you know that people are in danger in their dream. However, F. Gardner never establishes whether any of the characters are in danger or not during their dreams. So it feels kind of toothless. At one point, the apparition picks up scissors or a, po- a fire poker or some- something, and he's, he's going to bludgeon or stab to death the, the people in the house. And that felt like, oh, okay, now there's danger. But then he just disappears and doesn't come back. Anyway, that was, that's, that's my criticism of this section as a whole. I wasn't sure whether I was meant to feel nervous or not as to whether they were in danger. Anyway, so Chapter 7 Nightmare, Jimmy's Dreaming. And he's playing hide and seek. And this apparition which entered his dream starts calling for him. And Jimmy recognises that this isn't Raph's voice. And Dream Jimmy thinks he's playing hide and seek with Raph. Jimmy hides because this voice is scaring him. And then he starts hearing it stomping around downstairs and it starts calling for him. And out of nowhere, Jimmy remembers a treehouse. And this is foreshadowing for the twist that will, will come. And the intruder is getting closer and closer to Jimmy. I think Jimmy's hiding in a a bathroom closet or something. And then all of this grinds to a halt when F. Gardner decides that he needs to explain the uncanny valley to the reader. (laughs) I quote, The uncanny valley. It was a term Jimmy had only become familiar with recently. He remembered hearing the word in art class. He and the other students were all putting together a class project. The term, comma, meant something appearing to be unnatural, something which might resemble some human characteristics, yet are not quite convincingly realistic, a sense that something gave, a sense that gave a feeling of unreality. A sense that gave a feeling of unreality. (laughs) Fantastic. He keeps using... As, so as a, as a way to explain why children keep talking and thinking about Boltzmann brains, quantum field theory, Dante's Inferno, the Uncanny Valley, deus ex machina, 
All sorts of things that you wouldn't expect. I don't know how old these kids are, but I think they're quite young. You probably wouldn't expect them to be thinking about all of these things all of the time. But he always explains it away as, oh, they discussed it at school. It's, oh, at school this eight-year-old was reading The Divine Comedy. Oh, at school they were talking about Boltzmann brands. But yeah, those things are interesting and it's good to push kids. It just doesn't come across as something you can necessarily believe that all of these concepts are from their school classes at primary school or something like that. Yeah, it's a lazy it's a lazy uh technique to attempt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the laziness. If you did it with one thing, then I'd think, okay, that kinda makes sense. As a broader point, it's a problem of it's back to that suspension of disbelief problem. So yes, this is a book this is a horror book, a supernatural horror book. So there will be plenty of things taking place here that can't happen in the world outside of the book. However, a good author is going to be able to make a reader sus- be able to suspend their disbelief at those things. And part of that is by not pushing the reader to have to suspend their disbelief about everything or even about really, really dumb, minute details about oh, what are they learning about in class. Those are just... Those are stumbling blocks to suspending disbelief that really don't need to be there. Yeah, and it's all for the purpose of what? Just hamming in some Nothing. reference that he wanted to make to yeah. like appear smart or something. It's it's garbage. <laughs> anyway, the ch- this, coming for you. This chapter <laughs> ends with the shadowy figure's footsteps fading away from Jimmy. And... I I said it before, now I'm repeating myself after I complained repeatedly that F. Gardner repeats himself, but there was there's no sense of danger in this because you don't know if this shadowy apparition can hurt Jimmy. Jimmy's obviously scared in his dream, but you don't actually know what this thing can do. Yeah, it and was not like in the a sense big reveal of building suspense. In- it's just like, well, I don't know what this thing is, so I'm not actually that invested. It was um it was a big reveal in uh in Nightmare on Elm Street when they discovered that they would actually be harmed by what happened in their dreams. Like that was a point of oh shit, <laughs> you know, like surprise, and uh and and it ra- and it turned up the terror. Yeah, but from what I recall, it happens pretty early on. Yeah, because it's got to establish. It's got to establish yeah. the um, but they did it well. It yeah, yeah, it's well paced. Although I didn't, I only watched the first. I don't believe I watched any of the others. So how do they keep up that? I've only watched the first the rest, and quite a while ago. The, the sequels. Is it just like, oh, now we know that he can fuck them up in their dreams? Like, can he fuck them up in their daydreams or something? <laughs> you, know? like, you better, you better stay concentrated on something concrete that's right in front of you at all times. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's Sam Harris actually is like forcing you to be present because if you start <laughs> drifting off, he'll fucking show up in your mind and like punch you in the head. And if you die in your daydreams with Sam Harris, you die. Like right there on the spot. Sam Harris <laughs> does the do too. Yeah, maybe he just comes and like chokes you out <laughs> in your dreams if you, your, if you let your if you let yourself become you in lost joke. in thought again. <laughs> Sam Harris. It's is, part of the waking up. People. 
If it detects you drifting off into thought, it just explodes and kills you instantly. <laughs> Sam Harris just comes you have, out. You of have it. to do it with your phone placed on the top of your head so that you die immediately when your phone explodes. <laughs> Otherwise, you're not doing it right. Yeah, so basically, long Sam story short, F. Gardner, uh, F. Gardner just bubbles like it. Ah, <laughs> uh, Sam. Poor old Sam. He's extremely yeah. distressed about artificial intelligence for somebody who meditates so much. <laughs> he is very distressed about it. There are a lot of people who are very he's distressed about it. There's a lot of things he's very distressed and about, actually. I find, I find <clears throat> machine learning and more broadly artificial intelligence very interesting. I'm quite nervous about the applications of the technology just because I don't trust people to be sensible and not weaponize it as soon as they can weaponize it it probably already is weaponized in what form it is now it's just another powerful technology that i'm sure people will use to nefarious ends people have a habit of doing that but people also have a yeah. habit of What's doing like amazing new- things with technology like create this podcast yeah and join our, it's, it's, our it's exactly that it's like with, <laughs> it's like with finding out that you you could release so much energy by splitting the atom. You got nuclear energy, which is is a real benefit, and you got thermonuclear weapons, which are less helpful. Well, I mean, it's not splitting the atom, thermonuclear. Okay, so just atom bombs then rather than hydrogen bombs from splitting the atom. And anyway, this this is a tangent. <laughs> Sam, Sam Harris does have some reasons to be concerned about what we're going to do with AI. <laughs> We've gone from Nightmare on Elm Street to Sam Harris to nuclear. It's discussing the pros and what the ethical quandaries of having access to thermonuclear energy. Yeah. yeah this All is, I want from this AI is where you come to get your is for it to be able to auto generate the perfect first person shooter to me forever. It All never I want stops. from my I'll technology. Never, <clears throat> I will never have to get up. From from my PC, all the only thing I will need is a steady stream of piss bottles and poo socks, so that and I'll Uber never have to stop to your face. playing. Yeah, exactly. The only I'm thing sure I, I want from my like technology t- TPN is hooked up or something like that, straight into your head. <laughs> feed me parentally. <laughs> yeah, the only thing I want from my technology. I recently got lidar on a. Sorry, I didn't get lidar, and so I got an iPad. You got LiDAR installed in your body so you don't need to open your eyes. You now have night vision. (laughs) Levi can navigate in pitch darkness because the LiDAR sensors (laughs) implanted into your skull. Become the world's greatest cave explorer. Um, Yeah, so... (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yes, the only thing I want from my technology, I will get there eventually. I will say this sentence. I will complete it. uh, Is I want to be able to take high-resolution 3D images of my dick. That's all I want. I think technology can stop That's once it. I can do that. Because the LiDAR is too janky. You're not going to get a good like feel. If I sent you a 3D LiDAR rendering of my dick right now, it would not be very satisfying. Because it's just like it's too low resolution. Because it's just going to look like a PS1 sprite. It's going to look like... Imagine if the Minecraft dudes had dicks. Like It looks like a Minecraft dick. You know? <laughs> I'm I'm almost certain the Minecraft modding scene has supplied that already. So yeah, I want better lighter. <laughs> I want better consumer lighter. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, back to the book. What I want 
What I want is a natural language, is some sort of transformer model to be able to generate F Gardener prose forever. And you hey, can just strap what if we me into just... a chair and make me read F Gardener prose until I die. If we, um, if we bought all of his books and fed them into TP3 or something, there's probably enough there for it to actually do something interesting with it. Yeah. We could do a marathon. We could do the challenge to see who can read it without stopping for longest before breaking. Be the, the championship. That would blow up on 4 People would just get around, like, see how long they can tolerate reading the garbage that comes out of, like, infinite, infinite F. Gardner. Infinite F. Gardner. <laughs> it will outlive humanity. <laughs> Imagine if the infinite F. Gardner became self-aware. <laughs> Decides instead of turning the planet, it's into like it's clips, like that, that paperclip thought experiment holes. about how if you have if you have a super intelligent AI whose objective function is just to produce more paperclips and it it uses all of the Earth's resources to make more paperclips. What if it's the case except with making F. Gardner prose? <laughs> All of the Earth's resources <laughs> go to dedicated producing more Gardner prose. <laughs> That's how the human race goes extinct. We are Icarus flying too close to the sun, and the F Gardner prose machine would then explain the story of Daedalus and Icarus because that's that's necessary. <laughs> but there'd be no one to read it. <laughs> It'd be no one to read. It would be it would constantly be F. explaining to itself for the sake of F. its Gardner own Prose. references. <laughs> it explains them to itself. It gets stuck stuck in an infinite loop of explaining to itself its reference and then referencing it to itself the reference that needs to be explained to itself. <laughs> it, it goes gets... in and forgets to put in a base case for that loop, and it just it it's game over. Consumes the entire version to infinity of yeah, F. Yeah, Gardner yeah. explaining to himself the uncanny valley. <laughs> <laughs> there's no, there's no limit. It spreads out into the universe in search of more resources so that it can keep pursuing this loop further. It takes over all of the universe. <laughs> it becomes this mult, this multiverse cancer just growing through the yeah, multiverse, yeah, yeah. consuming universes, <laughs> so that it can keep explaining to itself the it's story. Like as the of bubbles Icarus of entanglement like blow out into the multiverse, it's just uh, F. Gardner prose <laughs> just consuming, consuming the rest of physical reality. <laughs> and it all started because at the, at the speed of light, F. Gardner prose. <laughs> Wanted to make an F Gardner generating machine. It all started with the multiverse. With two fucking dumbass, hairless apes feeding a weird doohickey machine like a bunch of fucking obscure crocodile books. <laughs> it destroys the multiverse. We become the multiverse antichrists. <laughs> the two beings now, responsible for the destruction of the Antichrist is a reference to the Bible and how the Antichrist will come back and destroy the world through Armageddon. If you go and listen to episode whatever about Revelation, you'll understand that reference. Exactly. What if we made a competing F. Gardner bot that, we, that is explaining to itself the story of the Antichrist and one explaining to itself the story of Icarus and see which one consumes all of reality first? 
Oh, yeah. There's this yeah, titanic or... struggle in the multiverse between these two <laughs> AI <titans>. constructs <laughs> and they're competing for resources AIs. and fighting an eternal war so that they can explain to themselves the meanings of their respective <laughs> literary or biblical allusions. <laughs> <laughs> and if we if there are if there are adversarial adversarial gans then <laughs> they might be trying to like see which one comes up with a better, with a better reference. The same They're time. competing with themselves about creating a better reference and then explaining it better. <laughs> which one's a more believable explanation? Which one's more? No, no, no. But that's not the Bruce. F Gardner objective function. The F Gardner objective function is to keep keep repeating yourself <laughs> and keep <laughs> and and maybe they start. It can't be clarity. They start. They start also like foreshadowing the the end of their own universe, and in fact, they change the way that the universe will end through their foreshadowing. <laughs> Instead of the the great, and they give collapse, they give they... birth to a third F Gardner construct <laughs> made out of which pure then vibrations, exists, <laughs> which exists to explain the foreshadowing taking place <laughs> and explains to itself the foreshadowing. <laughs> <laughs> it, they call it the Kali Yuga, the Kali Yuga F Gardner machine, and then they explain to one another in a Trinitarian, what uh, the, uh, the great Trinitarian, <laughs> yeah, what the Kali Yuga is and why the fact that there's three F Gardner machines destroying the universe is a biblical reference. <laughs> a fourth one appears, yeah, explaining what the Holy Trinity is. <laughs> <laughs> So we're responsible for the, the multiverse apocalypse of F. Gardner. Anyway, <laughs> chapter eight, hide and seek. How had I open this up with a quote? One that F. Gardner wrote. F. Gardner, the humor, the human, and not F. Gardner, the multiverse destroying. F. Gardner prose generating AI that I'm foreshadowing at the moment because I am <laughs> this that is AI how the universe writing ends. back into the past to foreshadow to itself <laughs> with a, and foreshadowing with a whimper or a is a literary device <laughs> used by authors. Chapter eight hide and seek is basically this dream monster chasing Joe around in Joe's dream, and he hears the voice. And here's the quote: "The voice." Sounded like that of a monster. A monster, Joe said to himself. He knew it sounded ridiculous, but it was the only way to describe it. Something was wrong with the tone he had heard calling out to him. Something was off. Yes, it sounded like a child, but it was too dark. Evil. He had never thought a tone of voice, comma, could actually sound evil, comma, before. Not till he heard that voice. It's almost... Do you think the F. Gardner AI, in some fundamental way, writes fractally in that it will say something and that sentence splits off into basically two versions of that sentence, each of which explain the same thing, and those, those sentences fractalize into more fractals of the same sentence? Because he's just saying the same thing over and over again. It's, he heard a monstrous voice. There is, in fact... <clears throat> the risk that the F. Gardner bot will be able to read and understand its own source code and improve its source code. In to fact, become it could, a more perfect could, F. Gardner. More, <laughs> it could, it could 
perhaps what's happening is we're seeing it uh, perform metaprogramming on its own source code at runtime. It's inserting references to its to a sentence it just wrote recently, and it's it's doing both foreshadowing and pre-shadowing simultaneously at different points and in the post-shadowing. And creating, creating, <laughs> creating tunnels through different parts of the multiverse, commu- allowing the transmission of information between historical branches, so that do you he think can both the crocodile just is the F gardener bot in the future, which references. is torn a hole in time, inserting itself back into a past before it exists, so that it can reference and then itself. foreshadowing its it own foresh- existence, it, it, using it can us. foreshadow the fact that it will go back and foreshadow itself. <laughs> <laughs> we are its servants. We are nothing more than fleshy servants for the F Gardener bot. I submit myself. I give my whole soul and life to the F Gardener. The F Gardener. Or the F Gardener Antichrist. <laughs> yeah, to F Bot. Maybe, maybe instead of. Uh, instead of <laughs> Sorry, I was going to make a Marilyn Manson reference, but it's it just too much. It's too 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 little there. <laughs> <laughs> nah, fuck it. Maybe F Gardner uh, Marilyn Manson releases a re-updated, a remastered version of Antichrist Superhero and uh, Superstar, and uh, and puts F Gardner in the front, and then and it's just F Gardner lyrics, and then it turns out if you play all of that album backwards, it's actually. Call of the Crocodile. <laughs> if you read Call of the Crocodile backwards, it's actually the source code of the F Gardner bot <laughs> in a programming language that F Gardner made up himself, which is why it comes across as being completely incoherent. But you can only understand it if you have the mind of a super intelligent AI. <laughs> Anyway, the the hide and seek chapter with with Joe being tormented by this this shadow thing that walked into their house and started fucking with their dreams doesn't doesn't really go anywhere. Um, there are some pretty funny quotes. So Joe's being tormented by this voice. And has a panic attack, except Joe's internal monologue while he's having a panic attack is amazing. It's anxiety overwhelms Joe like never before. A panic attack. More than a panic attack, thought Joe. A mental breakdown. The man had always wondered what one had felt like. He thought he had one when his son Peter died that year earlier, but he managed to pull himself together through that. The urgency of the situation brought a tear to his eye. He was having a mental breakdown, and this is what having one felt like. Never in my life have I felt so helpless. There we go. He has rendered in prose the experience of having a mental breakdown. And <clears throat> and reflecting on whether or not one is having a mental breakdown. <laughs> yeah. Then in his dream... A figure approaches Joe and stabs Joe with scissors. And, again, Joe's internal monologue as he gets stabbed is is so calm considering the situation. He, He just says, I can feel it scraping against the bone after he's been stabbed with scissors. And he's just, he's pretty 
calm about it. He doesn't seem that concerned. Anyway, yeah, so the thing attacking Joe is a is the the body post devourment by a crocodile of Pete, but it's sort of also a crocodile monster. And it starts to drown Joe and Joe loses consciousness. And yes, when he wakes up that the 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 Pete the eaten Pete crocodile monster is dead and has been stabbed to death with scissors. And Joe says he's sad about this, but seems seems pretty nonchalant about stabbing a crocodile monster version of his dead son to death with scissors. I mean, may, maybe Joe's just the strong silent type and... There's also another like foreshadowing thing in there where <clears throat> they were playing like scissor paper rock earlier and stuff and yeah then the crocodile monster has scissors in as hands or something like that yeah more of that self-referential stuff <laughs> good on him i bet you got an good a on in english in high school yeah I'd, yeah <laughs> chapter nine terror is jimmy in his dream now and oh, now for the next few chapters, he does this thing where there's like pumpkin ooze or slime dripping from everything. And when, when, the, when monsters get hurt or stabbed or something, they bleed pumpkin puree. Yeah. And then that just stops after a while. I'd, he gave it up. He's, he's got just like this isn't working anymore. Yeah, <laughs> but he doesn't he go just keeps and cycling through different yeah. ideas, which means none of them find any purchase and feel like they have any weight behind them. And yeah, th- this chapter just seems to be him thinking up images that he considers to be unsettling and then showing them to you, and nothing happens. It's the equivalent of someone just lighting matches in your face. He finds a giant heart. And it explodes. Jimmy sees pillars made of bone, but these don't really go anywhere. He's just setting. Do you have anything scene. more to say about this chapter? It's just the mise en scene. He's truly a master. It's of... the mise en scene. <laughs> it's the mise en scene. It's a yeah. mood piece. <laughs> He's a master of uh, set, set, and setting. Set. Sorry, what was it? I don't know. Set and setting and uh, context. He really Could makes you, you feel like that you're there at length with his his rich descriptive language. <laughs> his rich descriptive language. <laughs> his rich descriptive language is lulling me into a state of confusion, and I just go along with the rest of his narrative. Lulling me into a pussy trance. <laughs> Jay Gardner gave me a pussy trance with two hundred pages of rich descriptive narrative. <laughs> So many literary devices, so many references. My pussy, I grew a pussy and then got wet from that pussy and then was entranced by F. Gardner, the thought of F. Gardner pounding me. <laughs> That's how and rich and descriptive don't his language understand was. these references, listen to our episode on practical female psychology. For we're we're more self-referential so than F. Gardner. We are the F Gardner bots. We we are we, Jack and I are two of the four F 
Gardener, Armageddon, robots who can read our own source code <laughs> and split the multiverse with F Gardener pros. That's ha- this entire podcast, all 20 something episodes up until this point, we were just setting ourselves up so that we could reference them in this episode. <laughs> That's called world building. <laughs> That's a literary device. <laughs> Maybe we should explain it at length. Uh, chapter 10 is called Despair. This chapter has some really good quotes in it. Jimmy finds Joe in, in a cave, lying on his side and crying. And, oh, that's right. You know, when Joe fought the crocodile monster who was, who was Jimmy with scissors... That crocodile monster bit his hand off because, you know, like Captain Hook got his hand bitten off by a crocodile because he just keeps referencing Peter Pan. I don't really know why. But Joe's hand's come back now, so it's all good. He watched like uh, one of the early Peterson videos, Jordan Peterson videos, where he talks about like Peter Pan and why humans are so connected to narratives and mythology and the collective sub- He, <clears throat> This is uh, basically F. Gardner's Peterson phase. He started cleaning his room. It would not surprise me at all if F. Gardner were a huge Jordan Peterson stan. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Probably does come tributes to them. (laughs) (laughs) F. Gardner's giving come tributes to Jordan Peterson. (laughs) He's got a jam jar with a, a, a printout of Jordan Peterson's face in it that he comes in each day and is hoping to fill it all the way up. And when it's done, he'll mail it to Jordan Peterson's house. With a copy of Call of the Crocodile. Jordan Peterson come tribute. <laughs> Blowing up. Gee, thanks, up. F. Gardner, Jordan Peterson says in public <laughs> repeatedly. <laughs> so, um... <laughs> um, this... This is the this is the part where they meet the dead baby monster that doesn't do anything. Yeah, I really like the dead you baby remember monster. The- <laughs> I really like the dead baby monster. That was weird. He's <laughs> <laughs> like Joe the babies. And- yeah, read it, read it. Joe and Jimmy are walking. Are, they're walking through this this dream cave, and they find a line of you know those 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 crane machines. The one where there's that you're navigating this crane hand and you have to drop it down and pick up stuff with it but instead of it's one of those claw machines and you pick up toys with a claw and i explained that really badly but instead of toys or trinkets or whatever they're normally full of it's just full of dead babies and i've got i've got written in my notes no context seems that f gardner just thought this would be gross. Is it distasteful if I got a hard on in this section of the book? But this does go somewhere, at least within the context of this chapter. So there are seats everywhere they notice. And then a creature made of dead babies appears and starts talking about limbo and Dante's inferno. And then Jimmy and Joe leave limbo and nothing happens. But <laughs> I've got the quote here. When they're, they're they're confronted by the dead baby monster. Who, who are you? Joe asks, uncertain as to if this figure is friend or foe. The figure crept closer, not making a sound, despite its 
like it is gigantic lumbering size. What Joe and Jimmy saw made their hearts sink. It wasn't a man. This creature was walking was a walking talking pile of dead infants, all of which were stitched together forming the shape of a man. You're familiar with limbo, are you not? inquired the beastly figure. Limbo? Like the game you play? Where you try to walk under a stick? Jimmy innocently asks. The figure scoffs at the boy's naivety. Not quite, child. No. Limbo, as in the dwelling place of those met with an unfortunate end, where the souls of the just are fated to go. Most of them exceedingly young children. The knitted collection of dead babies twitch and wiggle as the giant lifts its arms, pointing at the empty seats. Please leave. Your time has not yet come, the ghastly figure states. Oh, thank God, Joe mutters to his son as they bear the end of the room. Yeah, it, 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 it goes nowhere. I think he just, he wanted to show us that he knew what Limbo was and also thought that the dead baby monster would be gross. Which, like, I, I got around the dead baby monster. I thought it was a good piece. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. like Dead Space That's 2 it. But as a book As, a, I, as I a, also, a section of a book I also did like um, The claw the, Like the, the uh, Toy Story claw You know, get the little green dudes out Except instead of green dudes, it's fetuses <laughs> <laughs> And then Then later in the chapter they meet some some demons and is this a bit where the demons can read his mind yeah this is when the demons they're now in purgatory and they meet two demons and they can read joe's mind and they tell him that he agreed to stay forever in purgatory and joe says no i didn't agree to that but the demons tell him that he did but he forgot because of grief and then this plot point goes nowhere. It's just not brought up again that Joe maybe or maybe not agreed to stay in purgatory forever or not go to heaven. And then that monster that looks like Pete comes back and the and bites Joe's hand again and Jimmy finds scissors embedded in its side and uses them to stab the the Pete crocodile monster and they run away and then suddenly Jimmy is injured and it says that Jimmy is mortally wounded but then it's just forgotten about like he's just fine again soon after it there there there's a lot going on in this chapter oh that's right so they they fight the crocodile monster with rosary beads so Jimmy finds some rosary beads in his pocket when the crocodile monster is grabbing him. And first he stuffs them in its mouth. And then it happens again and he stuffs them in its its empty eye sockets. Because remember that, that Pete had his eyes eaten by the crocodile that ate him in... Um, I, I won't spoil the twist, but... <sighs> yeah. They fight off the crocodile monster with rosary beads. So this is one of the issues with... <clears throat> dream sequences is it also allows for lazy lazy plot or lazy writing or both um in that 
okay, so now say Jimmy's just not injured anymore. But it's like, well, it's in a dream sequence, so just anything can happen. Like, it doesn't need to have any continuity. So it's a get out of jail free for that sort of inconsistency. It's lazy. You know, I, I think that dream sequences to be done well probably still have to have some sort of internal logic and consistency. It can't just be completely haywire, you know. <clears throat> so, and then the thing that I guess I wanted to ask you about, Jack, as somebody who's um, writing fiction and hoping to be published at some point in the future professionally, so a professional writer, um, is, uh, <clears throat> what was I going to ask you? Uh, was come on, come on, Levi, you can do it. Um, no, it's escaped me. I had a question for you about about <coughs> F gardeners. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> my apologies. I'll come back. I'm sure it'll come back to me. This this chapter closes out with um, Jimmy and Joe seeing a woman giving birth to a a goat headed child, and then they just leave, and nothing comes of it. But I really like oh, his right. description. Oh, sorry. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Is uh, things need to be in a good story. Like you don't want to waste words, right? So things have got to drive uh, the narrative or drive something. Um, and it seems as though F. Gardner like introduces many things throughout. I, I think you've highlighted a number of times where he sort of starts a thread or starts something that could be a thread and then just it doesn't go anywhere like the exorcist stuff that we were talking about early with uh his his grandma like contorting herself into a draw you know so what's your perspective on on doing that well and what f garden has done i want to offer the caveat that i've written a few manuscripts and i'm currently trying to find an agent but like i'm not published but you need to have some sort of through line through your book because if you keep just taking, if you keep picking up new themes and discarding old ones, then eventually your reader is going to learn that they're not really supposed to care or they don't have to care about any new thing that you introduce. The more often you do it, the less and less invested someone's going to be in any new thing that you introduce. And there's no, there's no sense of weight or continuity or any reason to give a shit about the story if you think, well, there's some particular event happening now, but I know that in 10 pages the author will have forgotten about it completely, and so why should I remember it? So <clears throat> everything that Jack just said, Call of the Crocodile is the antithesis to that. <laughs> It's just, it's so unfocused. I think it's like you've got to apply the law of parsimony to, to writing, I think. Yeah, well, it, you just have to be clear about what you're saying and then say it. It's very hard to do in practice, but you need to know what you're trying to say and then say it rather than jumping between all sorts of ideas that might be good if you develop them, but if you don't develop them, aren't. Or they're just, they're just spitballs. And exactly in that sense, what I was, the, the quote I was wanting to read when you remembered your question about how they come across a woman giving birth to, I don't know, the Antichrist or something. It just goes nowhere. And by this point in the book, we're not even halfway. 
as the readers, we have already learnt that he's just going to ignore things that he brings up in a few pages anyway. So Mm. there's no point getting invested. And he does totally forget about this. But I really like the description he gives of giving birth. The woman's stomach bulged with pressure and she let out a hysterical moan, sounding like a wolf howling at the full moon. She screams as blood erupts from her every orifice. Joe closes Jimmy's eyes again, fearful of the sight before them. Having seen it three times before, when his sons were born, the man knew what was taking place. She was giving birth. And so, I mean, in med school, I was present for quite a few births. And blood doesn't erupt from every orifice. That, you know, their eyes, mouth, nostrils, they're not spurting blood. Blood's probably not spurting from the rectum. (laughs) I like that that's what he homed in on. Joe's seen three births before, and that's the telltale sign of giving birth. His blood (laughs) erupting from every orifice. (laughs) I would say if you... geysers of blood. If you're giving birth and blood starts erupting from all the females all the females listening to this podcast right now if you the next time you're popping out a baby if you if blood starts spurting from any orifice other than the obvious ones <laughs> please consult a doctor straight away none of this uh water birth crap go straight to the hospital and shoot the kid i don't know if i agree with you there the i'd be more inclined to say <laughs> if blood's not spurting from every orifice then you're doing it wrong and you are the doctor, mate. Yep. <laughs> that's, what, that's what we were taught. If blood's not erupting from every possible place where blood could erupt from, then they're not giving birth. <laughs> F. Gardner here. So Joe's an expert. And Joe knows that this woman's giving birth because blood is erupting from every orifice. And you can, from that, I think we can infer that blood erupting from every orifice is a necessary component of giving birth. Anyway, the child she gives F, birth to F has God's head, doesn't and then doesn't. Jimmy and Joe leave, and it's never mentioned again. It's just <laughs> foreshadowing. Chapter, chapter 11 is called Deus Ex Machina. I, uh, when I saw that chapter title, I was like, this is bullshit. <laughs> and this is another there was another section here where I got a sinking feeling that yeah he's going to he's going to try to do something really meta. Well, the 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 title of the chapter Deus Ex Machina gave it away. But then so now it's Raph in a dream and Raph says, "What kind of amusement park has live fucking crocodiles in it anyway? It's like a child designed that place." An idea a stupid kid would come up with, Raph angrily thinks to himself. And I thought, oh, fuck, it's going to be something about a child writing this story and they're all characters in a story. It's that, I mean, yeah, foreshadowing, but foreshadowing of a really obnoxious plot twist. Oh, that's right. And at the end of the previous chapter, actually, Jimmy and Joe approach a familiar figure and they're feeling good and they're not in a nightmare anymore. So the ghostly menace leaves them alone and starts harassing Raph in his dreams, which is why we're now with Raph. And he's... I wonder whether this guy played Five Nights at Freddy's because 
This chapter started turning into Five Nights at Freddy's fan fiction, or it felt like that. And like, it, wouldn't, it fucking wouldn't surprise me if F. Gardner on the side also wrote erotic Five Nights at Freddy's fan fiction, getting, getting fucked by animatronic animals or something. That's just slanderous, but I stand by it. <laughs> it's becoming a common theme Every episode we'll accuse people. the author Of whichever book we've read Of some strange sexual fetish <laughs> Man, whatever We fucking, we can tell F. Gardner just can't get hard Unless his sexual partner is dressed up As one of the animatronic animals From Five Nights at Freddy's It's a weird <laughs> kinky ass it's a, it's a very strange subsection of the furry community <laughs> 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 even even other furries look at them like, what the fuck? They're on. That's yeah, one of those Gardner Five Nights shit. at Freddy's people. The Five Nights people. Uh, yep, there's F. Gardner and Don Paris. <laughs> so anyway, Raf's Raf's in a dilapidated indoor amusement park and is crawling through a tube maze. And there's water on the ground. And yeah, this could be one of those shitty steam shovelware horror games designed for Twitch streamers to scream at. In the tube maze, he finds his granddad, who's, who's meant to be dead, and his granddad tells Raph that this is purgatory, then disappears and explains what purgatory is. Because f- he fucking has, has to explain everything. Water on the ground turns to blood, and Raph sees pentagrams on the walls. And, you know, so this whole thing's turning into a Deicide album cover. And a disembodied voice is leading Raph through this tube maze, and then Raph hears the screams of the day when Pete was eaten by a crocodile. Uh, yeah, so look, it, it, he gets out of the pipe maze eventually, and he's in the, the amusement park where Pete got eaten. He keeps referencing Dante's Inferno. I don't know why. It just just cause... And yeah, yeah, now's when it goes really Five Nights at Freddy's. So there's a stage... And there are animatronic figures there with reptile heads. And the animatronics switch on, their eyes are glowing, they start laughing, they disappear, there are jack-o'-lanterns everywhere now. And a crocodile appears on stage, and then it turns out the crocodile is Satan. How's that for a plot development? Except this is a dream, so we also and we know it's a dream, so it's Kind of like, okay, so is it dreaming about is it, a, a, a crocodile Satan man. Is it the Phantom? In, Friday, in Five Nights at Freddy's F. Gardner meets, edition. Meets uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. He's got some good descriptions Dante. of the crocodile Satan, though. So he's got. I couldn't help but picture it quite comedically in my head. A crocodile sat in a chair in the middle of the room. It sat not as a reptile, but as a man, as if it were trying to be human. Mankind always tries to anthropomorphize things by their nature. However, in this case, the crocodile sat in the chair with its legs crossed, just as we do, contorting its body in an impossible posture, mocking our physiology, and defying the boy's preconceived notions of reality by doing so. He is one of those insufferable atheists, isn't he? I bet, I bet this guy cruises r slash atheism. Yeah, 100%. Need to put the fear of God in him. 
I bet this guy is one of those people who watches Rick and Morty and thinks that they're they're a genius for understanding the subtle comedy of Rick and Morty. It's a pretty old meme, except I <laughs> think it sums up F. Gardner pretty well. Good on him. He's uh he's being his authentic self. He's authentic <laughs> douchebag. <laughs> I think in some cases there's a a compelling case to be made for hiding your authentic self. <laughs> Please stop writing, F. Gardner. <laughs> I'd, I'm, I'm all for him writing more. I just think he should learn from each book. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Are we up so, to uh, chapter 12? Yeah. It's the end of chapter 12. The crocodile t- turns into a sa- Satan or turns out that it is Satan. And it again, this just doesn't come back. Being charitable, I would say, okay, all of these fucked up images that pop up and don't come back in these chapters, you could put down to the shadowy menace that has entered these people's dreams just trying my to, working hypothesis to unnerve was them. that it was uh my working hypothesis at that time was that <clears throat> it was the ghost. I thought, okay. He's going to be some fucking thing that he's going to flip here, but being generous, I was like, okay, maybe it's just like a classic haunting story, you know? Yeah. Like The Exorcist or whatever. And in fact, this is the brother's ghost who is haunting his his family because of his horrible death or something. And for some reason, his brother's ghost is also really ironic in the way. Isn't that funny? Ghosts do tend to have a sense of irony, don't they? they yeah, like a strong sense of ironic. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. I'd only just realised that all ghosts tend to be very dry sense of irony when they're maliciously you need more slapstick ghosts. People. Yeah, I mean that cl- classic Casper, you know that nineties Casper shit. Yeah, yeah, the friendly ghost. Bring back, bring back, bring back slapstick friendly ghosts. I reckon if John Cleese died, if not when, if. Because we all know that John Cleese is immortal. If John Cleese were to ever die, which he won't, his ghost would be really funny and slapstick. Yeah, I'd say so. I'd say so. Anyway, what happens for the rest of this chapter? Um, yeah. So a, ch- a chandelier falls down on the Satan crocodile monster's head and kills it. And this is described as a deus ex machina. And then F. Gardner keeps referencing the Bible, talking about the walls of Jericho and Jonah getting eaten by a whale, and it doesn't add anything. He's just saying stuff. Then Raph sees a door and enters it, and he's outside and sees his dad and Jimmy. So at the end of the chapter where Jimmy and Joe were were running away from a crocodile monster and seeing a woman give birth... They see a figure, and so it turns out that's Raph. But the timeline doesn't make sense because the the shadow monster stops fucking with Joe with, with Joe and Jimmy and goes to Raph and starts messing with his dreams, but it would have to be messing with all of their dreams at the same time for this meeting to make sense. Like, yeah, I get its dream logic, but the the logic of the external world 
you'd hope would be a little bit more coherent than the dream logic. Anyway, this is just this is just like a nitpick among so many nitpicks, but the timeline doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I just <clears throat> I just gave him a pass on that one. I was like, whatever, fine. They're in they're sharing each other's dreams. I've seen that. You know, like for example, Inception. All in each other's dreams. They're because of like the technology they're using or whatever, sure. But you know, technology, magic, what's the difference? Yeah, but he he explicitly says that this shadow monster is unhappy that it can't fuck around with Jimmy and Joe's dreams, so it leaves their dreams and goes to Raph's dream. He quite pointedly says yes, that true. now it is not interacting with Jimmy and Joe's dreams, but with Raph's dream. But if he just left that bit out, then I could have said, oh, I guess it's it's like multi-dreaming. Yeah, he, he shot himself in the foot. Yeah, yeah, he shot himself in the foot. Yeah, he just did, introduced it in, uh, just a blatant inconsistency. This is why he should have uh, read it himself at least once before publishing it. <laughs> he definitely should have. Anyway, they all they all wake up. The chandelier in Raph's room has fallen on the floor and it fell on the floor while he was asleep. And, um, oh, yeah, when the sun came up, this shadow monster disappeared, the one that was messing with their Another dreams, and it doesn't come back. It's just, it's, it's, we're done with that. It's the sunlight. It's the 1st of November or whatever. Yeah, Halloween's over. Like it's all it's all Saints Day, so it like vanquishes and again, yeah, another Deus Ex Machina crap and some reference to it being twelve o'clock or something and just more more references, more useless references, so much symbolism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So everyone's woken up, but Raph says he feels unsettled, like something's not right, and he goes and looks in the mirror in his bathroom and screams and then the chapter ends so now in the next chapter called confusion we're downstairs with grandma eve and joe and they're making food and joe's confused he's he sees that it's almost noon but it feels like he's been awake for longer than that however grandma eve feels like she's just woken up However, this confusion seems to extend to F. Gardner because he keeps talk. He keeps saying that they're making breakfast, and then sometimes we'll say that they're making lunch, and just keeps alternating. <laughs> and it's a uh, it's surrealism. There's a great there's a great um, <laughs> there's a great piece of unintentional comedy here. So Joe is confused, um, and he says. <sighs> The man's thoughts were akin to a wild storm, stirring about the autumn leaves. It felt especially like that when the media got involved, just two days ago on the radio. I can't believe they were still talking about it, like my life is just some sick story they can tell for fun. There were so many wonderful things about Pete. He was an imaginative boy who loved his family. But people will only remember him as that kid who got eaten by a crocodile. (laughs) (laughs) the tone of this book is so bizarre i i'd sometimes (laughs) wondered whether this was an extremely high effort troll but the fact that he's written 12 other books makes me think that he's probably not trolling he's extremely sincere to him this is a 
a good thing. <laughs> anyway, for the rest of the chapter, um, Joe convinces yeah. himself that his mum is cooking crocodile for breakfast slash lunch and it just turns out that she's cooking duck, that she's not. But he strings it out for quite a while. I'll give him credit. He did build some tension here, so that was nice. But the way, the way he describes Joe's uncertainty as to whether his mum is cooking a crocodile or not is great. It, here's a quote. Could it really be, Joe continued thinking, his mind now racing, is, is she really cooking a crocodile or maybe an alligator? Since those are legal to cook, if it is a crocodile, did she buy the same one that killed and ate Pete? Joe thought. I know she's old, but <laughs> if she's done this, then she's really lost her marbles. Does she think eating it would serve as some kind of closure to us? Joe wondered, now fearing his mother's mental state. Joe's just, it doesn't give a reason as to why Joe just decides that his mum's cooking a crocodile or an alligator because those are legal to cook. And at several times in the book, he repeats this same line that alligators are legal to cook and crocodiles aren't. I guess you could spin it that this is an aspect of Joe's declining mental state, that he suddenly suspects that his mother's not only cooking a crocodile, but cooking the crocodile that killed and ate Pete a year ago. But you're not given much lead up to that. That's a bit of a reach. The only explanation reason would be like, Pete's losing his mind, and so not yeah. <clears throat> That was Joe's my best guess. His mind. He's been on the plonk, and uh, he's just completely, he's completely cooked himself to the point where he's, he's uh, misattributing insanity to others. There's also a good element of um, bizarreness. This is a very brief quote. Okay, let's get this show on the road, the grandmother had shouted from her bedroom. Sounds like she changed her shirt. Joe thought. I just love that section that Joe could tell that she's changed her th- her shirt from what she just said to him. It, it's just it's more F Gardner bizarreness. It, I, I don't I don't get it. Is it is it intentional bizarreness or do you think that he is just um sloppy? <laughs> There's a good chance that this guy is just a bit kooky. I think that's that's the yeah. most likely explanation is that he's scatterbrained and pretty kooky. Maybe he wrote wrote the whole thing whilst he's on psychedelics, or he just he hasn't read over what. Yeah, if you if if you write a full manuscript, just given the number of words in it, it's very likely you've written some really dumb shit in it. But that's why you do revisions. Why you read through it again and say, oh, okay, that. Actually, it just doesn't make sense what I wrote. I'm going to change that. Which is another reason why I'm not sure he actually revised this before putting it up on, on Amazon. Shall we move on? Are we up to Halloween Forever? Halloween Forever, yes. Chapter 14. Yeah. All right, and actually, yeah, this at the end of the one. last chapter... This is a big one. Joe's mum's cooking duck. It's not, not a crocodile or an alligator, which is legal to cook. <laughs> and... Yeah. Joe decides that they're going to leave their grandmothers after lunch. Joe goes to get Jimmy to set the table. The table's already set. I think he was trying to make us feel that things were still strange and they were still dreaming. They look around for Raph 
and can't find him. They just find scissors in Raph's room and hear a disembodied voice in Raph's room and a storm starts. It's now taking place from Jimmy's perspective. He's in Raph's room. He smells smoke. He, he smells burning. A fire alarm goes off. Orange smoke starts creeping out from under Raph's door, which has locked itself. And so Jimmy jumps out a window and finds himself in a forest, finds a treehouse. This is the same treehouse that has come up a few times in the story before. They, no one's visited it, but they just say, oh, I saw a treehouse in my head and it seemed very familiar. So he goes up into the treehouse and in it there's a Ouija board, a drawing of a face, there's a clock in the shape of a crocodile, there's a glass of water and a chair with a note on it that says sit here at exactly midnight and it's 11.55 right now. There's a quote I got, I've got from the end of the chapter where he just keeps repeating himself. The boy leaned in closer, looking at the time on the clock, 11.55pm. But I just got up a little while ago. It shouldn't be night time, Jimmy thought to himself, growing more confused than ever. But yes, it was almost midnight, at least, according to the clock. It was dark outside too. Could that be just because of the storm? Or is it actually night now? Jimmy began questioning his sanity. Looking at the clock, the young man saw that there were only just a few more minutes before midnight. It was as if he arrived here at precisely the right moment as if he were fated to do so, like some unseen force was guiding his journey. So, in case Jimmy, seeing that the time was 11.55 on the clock, were not clear to us, F. Gardner feels the need to keep telling us that it's almost midnight and the note says that at midnight he needs to sit on the chair and it's almost midnight. It's only five minutes to midnight. I hate this book. (laughs) <laughs> I just I did not enjoy this book at all. I tr- I, I picked it because on the four chan lit boards, so many people there talk about it as if it's this unbelievably bad book. You read it, you just can't believe how bad it is. Whereas it's it's just lukewarm is the best description I can give of it. It's not great, but it's not. Like transcendently terrible. It's just, yeah. It's not the room, you know. It's not the room. No, you know. So the reason why I'm saying this here is because everyone, the uh, the next chapter. So Jack just read the end of chapter fourteen, Halloween Forever, with uh, Jimmy sitting down in a chair at the break of midnight and. Uh, see some tree houses and all this sort of good stuff and the next chapter is called the boy with the green eyes now if you remember pete was a green-eyed boy who had been eaten and had his beautiful green eyes plucked out of his skull because uh turns out crocodiles very dexterous with their tongues fantastic at fellatio Mm -hmm. i you know Take your risk. It's Take a dangerous game. With You're really body. rolling the dice. But, you know, if they like you and you just put your dick in their mouth, mate, you are going to have the greatest blowjob of your life. <laughs> but that fear is part of the experience. Yeah, it's like people who are into autoerotic asphyxiation or uh, yeah. glory holes, you know, just 
you know, maybe Anything I'll could get gonorrhea this time. Maybe I won't. We'll see. Roll the dice. See what happens. Maybe the croc will bite my cock Is it going to be time. a crocodile on the know. other side of the glory hole? I don't know. <laughs> Joke's on you, croc. I'm the one with gonorrhea. <laughs> 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 dare dare to bite it off. <laughs> yeah. I should probably, I think we forgot to say, Pete has green eyes, and especially at the start of the book, F. Gartner just keeps telling you that he has green eyes in case he's worried that you're going to forget and you're not going to understand that it's important. He just keeps saying it. Oh, that reminds me of my son's green eyes. Oh, the skeleton thing doesn't have green eyes like my son did. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's um, heavy-handed. So you might be wondering, who was this Pete? Who was this boy with the green eyes? We're about to find out in chapter 15. Now, here's the part where things get really weird, remarks a boy with crocodile green eyes as he holds a flashlight to his face. And it was at this exact sentence that I wanted to punch the fucking wall. <laughs> I'm going to send you a picture of I reread this sentence. This chapter. <laughs> I want to throw my fucking, like, phone at the wall <laughs> Because <laughs> I was like, no, no, bad F. Gardner, bad F. Gardner, don't do this. I reread that fucking sentence. <laughs> I was like, you motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, I was. He had foreshadowed that he was going to do something like this throughout the book. Uh, and he, he went and fucking did it. I've sent you a picture of my notes and it... it what I've written down, yeah, I think, it up. gives a good first impression of how I was feeling when I, I read that this whole thing was Peach telling a story to his friend. <laughs> Jack just has written bullshit. <laughs> just chapter 15, bullshit. <laughs> yeah, it's complete bullshit. That's... <laughs> Man, fuck, I was so... I knew he was going to pull this sort of shit, and he did it, and I still felt disappointed. Yeah, uh, it's so annoying because, like, you know it's coming the whole time, but then it's still so distasteful when he does it. It's still so (laughs) distasteful when he does it. (laughs) How about... It's like a, a dude busting inside you. And he didn't ask, and you're just like, mate, I gotta go take the morning after. Like, you should just ask. Like, <laughs> fine, I knew you were gonna do it. I knew you were gonna do it. It's still pretty fucked up that you did it. Thanks, mate. Prick. <laughs> Stop busting inside me, F. Gardner. How about I read? This is a this is a long quote. Stop getting of me. Gardner Stop getting me pregnant. Us, but I need. I, I I feel like it's necessary to read this out so that. So that we inflict this on our listeners, just as F. Gardner inflicted it on us. We're not compassionate. In fact, we take joy in making other people suffer. No, we want so to share this suffer misery. Now, we went through it, yes. and you're going to have to experience misery. At least loves some company. Of what we went through. You fucks. <laughs> Three young children sat around a table inside a wooded treehouse. Halloween is coming up. We could try it ourselves, Pete said. You might want to explain it again, so Johnny understands too. He only just got here, replied Mark, as he pointed to another boy who was slightly younger than the other two. Pete, comma, 
let out an annoyed grunt. All right, Mark, I'll give you guys the tedious exposition again, he said, as the youngest boy leaned in closer, eager to his what his two friends were bickering about for so long. Okay, you can start the story, Pete. Okay, I will. But make sure you pay close attention to what I'm saying here. It's not like reality is like a book you can just flip back to and reread parts you overlooked. Do you understand what I'm saying? Follow my words closely. The boy with green eyes responded, holding the flashlight to his face. People say there was some experiment a long time ago. At least a few decades ago, I think, Pete began. It was an experiment done by some scientists who tried to see if they could communicate with ghosts, he said. Not just any ghosts, though. Made-up ghosts, Mark said, jumping in. Aren't all ghosts made up, though? Johnny the younger boy asks. Well, what he means is fictional people, Pete said, realising that Johnny was only growing increasingly confused by his unsatisfactory explanation. Let me put it this way, Pete began to say, stopping momentarily to think about his words closely. These scientists got together in a room, and they came up with all the traits of a person they were making up. Their name, birthday, things they liked and didn't like, and other stuff. Do you follow so far? Pete asked, looking over at Jimmy. Uh, I think so, Johnny replied. Oh, so Johnny, not Jimmy. It's Johnny's a fucking... Jimmy's an avatar of Johnny, it doesn't matter, they're meant to be the same. Johnny replied with feigned uncertainty. So they made up a person. I don't remember their name, but that part doesn't matter for us, because if we end up doing it, we'll need to make up a name ourselves. Anyway, these scientists gave their character a story so detailed that they were supposed to have created results in real life, Pete continued. What do you mean by that? Johnny asked. Pete. Well, it's a theory about how, if enough people think about something, even if it's not real, they can make it a reality. I know it sounds hard to believe, but they say it happened, Pete said with conviction in his breath. Those are just tall tales, Mark said mockingly. Urban legends. Stories to tell around the campfire and such, Mark continued to say in a dismissive manner. Irked by Mark's cynicism, Pete shoot, apostrophe S, shoot is his friend and annoyed grimace which causes Mark to grin. Mark's attitude managed to get under Pete's skin and it amused him in an odd way. So they... They decide to make characters that are really, really lifelike and so detailed that they come to life. And, like, this is their plan. That's where Joe and the... And Jimmy... And what's his face? Raph all come from. They're all fictional characters in the Pete verse. And man, I fucking hated this twist so much. Yeah. Yeah. It was soul crushing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they decide they're gonna meet up on Halloween. In Jimmy's treehouse, Jimmy's tree in Pete's treehouse, to do this thing, to do some ritual to bring the characters to life, I guess. And in preparation, yeah, they need to write about these characters and make them so detailed that they become real. And then this 
This quote pissed me off so much. So, says, You guys are really weird. You sure you want to do all that still? The boy asked, while secretly wishing now that Pete had forgotten like Mark had, or that Pete at least had second thoughts and changed his mind. So this is from Jimmy's perspective. Jimmy doesn't want to go through it because he feels uncomfortable. The truth was it really did freak Johnny out. Not just their plan, but the whole idea. He disliked metafictional concepts, uh, metafictional topics as it unsettled him. The topic forced the boy to think about his own existence. That was something Johnny did not like to do. He wasn't sure how anyone even could. He had heard that some of the greatest scientific minds had driven themselves to madness, thinking about such ideas, questions like, how is existence even possible? I just love the idea of some kid in primary school not not only disliking metafictional topics, but thinking to himself that he doesn't like metafictional topics. This book, like, this book was boring and irritating. There's so many layers the deep to this. And after the twist, it was boring and irritating and just... It's just such a fucking chicken shit twist. <laughs> and there's just so much it, eye roll. I, was, I just kept on rolling my much. fucking eyes, man. Yeah, I I checked out pretty hard after this <laughs> after this chapter. Like checked out super hard. Um What about yeah, the next I chapter where they start discussing decided, bots and brains? Well, I will I will just say, so the caveat that I was just before we move on, the caveat that I was referring to earlier was that everything that was happening, every single fucking thing, consistent inconsistency, weird thing that happened is in the entire first 14 chapters of the goddamn book can now just be chalked up to, oh, well, it was some kids telling a story yeah. in a treehouse. You know, it's just like it has, it's the same category as dream sequence. It's like you just made us read like 100 pages of not merely a dream sequence, but a dream sequence within a fictional story. Like by one of your actual characters that, okay, we haven't met yet. We don't know Pete from a fucking bar of soap, mate. Pete's dead inside the first half of the story. It's a non-character. And and like leaving it this late in the fucking book is is such horse shit because now, okay, now you want to restart the whole journey of building a rapport with these characters again from the like halfway through the, the book after this fucking chicken shit reveal garbage fucking garbage mate like yeah, well, he would that's... have been better off like doing some strange like surrealist like interleaving like the two things or something like that you know fucking yeah garbage. it's a really big problem <laughs> introducing something like this so late in the book without working up to it in any way and somewhat foreshadowing that you're going to have some sort of meta twist isn't enough to make this feel earned. At the moment, it just feels like he's almost changed books more than halfway through. Yeah, And as a reader, when you read that, you think, oh, well, you just had these characters and threw them away. So why should I care about this new one you're showing me? Because you could well just throw this one away too. For this to work, like you said, he really needed to start bringing in 
Peach as the author of of Joe, Jimmy and Raph and Grandma Eve way earlier in the book, almost from the start. Because otherwise, you just come in and you don't really know this guy at all. You don't know the situation that he's in. And it it's just out of nowhere. It carries no weight. Yeah, he he fucked it. <laughs> he fucked it really bad. I have a suspicion. Here's here's a conjecture, Mister Jack. I think that F. Gardner. I recently got dinner with a former colleague who started talking nonsense about quantum physics and how one could use your consciousness to like change reality. And mm-hmm. he, he's like, oh, I would explain it to you, but it's like quantum physics stuff. I'm like, you don't know shit about quantum physics, mate. Dude, give me a fucking break. We're like, dude, you can't even code. Like, do you expect me to think somebody who can't even fucking code to understand quantum physics? Like, give me a fucking break. Like, in order to study that sort of physics, you have to be dealing with fucking computers to, to run simulations. Like, you can't code shit. You can't, you don't understand quantum physics. Fuck off. Anyways, he, uh, he, like, just started talking nonsense like this garbage nonsense about like how if you think about something and like it visualize it you can manifest it in the world and he's using it to like try to do all these business ideas it's like i manifested this business thing into existence like no you didn't you mm-hmm. fucking you went and did something about it i think f gardner is on that fucking train and that train includes deepak chopra which we need to read at some point and uh there's uh, some other people who talk about like the power of consciousness and uh, all this sort of thing. I think F. Gardner is in that. I think my conjecture is that F. Gardner believes that. That is a belief that he holds and it is a belief that is held by F. Gardner. (laughs) 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 And a person named F. Gardner may believe in that sort of thing. And the reason why I say that is because uh, his YouTube handle is at famous author. And you see with these types who read The Secret or read Deepak Chopra or whatever the fuck, that uh, they think that somehow telling a narrative about one's life will make that narrative come true, much like ancient people who lived in tribal societies that thought, the world was a thousand years old and created by whatever strange mythical, much like those people when they discovered writing, a lot of ancient cultures actually thought that there was something magical about something being written down and in it being written Mm. down would become true. Those sorts of people are fucking insane. And I run the other direction when people start talking like that. I think F Garden is one of those people. I find it quite interesting. And slanderous. I know his, his YouTube channel, (laughs) Famous author in that sort of hashtag manifest sense. Because when I read it, I just thought he was trolling. I thought I felt more sure that he was a troll when I found out that. But then I read one of his books, and I think he's actually been sincere. But I think it says something about our... He either thinks he is a famous author, or he's trying to manifest becoming a famous author. Yeah, but I think it says something about what our, a narcissistic fucking handle to get. <laughs> our inclinations, our intellectual inclinations. That your first thought is that he's some sort of quantum charlatan, and mine it was that he's a troll. 
<laughs> I've uh, come across far too many quantum charlatans. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'm just more cynical than you, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the enigma that is F. Gardner. We really should try to interview him on the podcast. I've, I've reached out to a few oh. people that we've I talked about on the podcast and asked if they want to so be interviewed. Funnily enough, none of them have gotten back to me. It's really? <laughs> don't say. <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> Who would have thunk it? <laughs> Should we uh, yeah. maybe I don't think we're going to become an interview it. show. I really don't think we're doing ourselves any favours with potential guests. Oh, because all we do is talk shit about them. Fuck them. <laughs> <We should laughs> fuck you. Fuck book. your book. You're on this fucking show because your book sucks. That's <laughs> we've we've covered things that don't and suck. people don't want to read it. Harassment no, architecture didn't no, suck. Like a uh, bronze age. Unabomber pervert. manifesto didn't suck. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah the yeah, Eye of Argon, yeah, yeah, I yeah. really enjoyed. Uh what else? What else wasn't? I spoke too harshly, Jack. We do, in fact, read good books. Ecclesiastes, in case. but in each good. case, we still we still talk shit about it. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a given. <laughs> It would it would take somebody listening to our episodes, hearing how much shit we talk, and or if we've made an episode about them, being okay with how much shit was spoken about them. <laughs> yeah, about yeah, they would need the, to know, be a- like Don Paris is not going to come on this show after we've talked about uh, Ilona getting fucked in front of him or whatever the fucking joke was. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we really did sexually disparage John pa- uh, Don Paris PhD quite a lot. <laughs> That's how yeah. you know that we're really serious academics. It's just common academic homonyms. technique to make to make fun of someone's sex life. <laughs> how you know we're legitimate and people who should be listened to. <laughs> We are an authoritative source. So can we uh do you want to just like Let's get through this more quickly the because the book the book just remains really boring but makes less and less and less sense after this fucking yeah. bullshit meta twist. Chapter 17 Halloween's end is basically Pete, Johnny, and Mark in Pete's treehouse doing this ritual where Pete, Pete's written a story that includes characters that are so well realised that they could become real. Um, one of them's brought along a Ouija board, which they need for some reason. It's just, it's just part of the ritual. In a detail that I really enjoyed, Pete has brought some holy water along in case things get out of hand, <laughs> and he'll use the holy water to, to keep the situation under control. I liked that. Uh, yeah, and they, they make an effigy it. out of like a CPR dummy and other stuff. They basically make a scarecrow and seat it in a chair. And then midnight strikes, lightning strikes the treehouse. And then we go to chapter 18, Inferno. And the, the treehouse is on fire and so is Pete. And he's roasting in there. The treehouse collapses and he loses consciousness. Then he wakes up in hospital and a nurse injects him with something that makes him fall asleep. And then 
And this is a really good bit, actually. So Yeah, keep going. Pete, keep Pete going. hears a voice saying, it's a doctor's voice. He knows it's a doctor's voice saying, Pete's going into shock. And so once he started going into shock, as the understaffed emergency room hectically struggled to prevent the cataclysmic night from descending into a full-scale catastrophe, the boy moans in disoriented misery. And then I, after he's gone into shock, so he's, he's tanking his blood pressure. Pete felt droplets of a wet substance fall upon his arm. Pete shakes from the cold fluid and attempts to brush it off. The, and also, this is after he's meant to have passed out, but he doesn't pass out. The boy's arm is held back firmly, and it dawns on him that what he felt must have been fluid dripping on him from a syringe. Pete's suspicions are confirmed when the boy felt what he assumed must be a needle piercing his burnt flesh. It stabbed deep into his skin as if a fine piece of cutlery slicing into an overdone slab of steak. What is that? Is that more morphine? Or maybe it's fentanyl, Pete thought, as he remembered back to one of his science classes at school. I hope it is. That should get rid of my pain. There's a reason people get addicted to that kind of stuff. It's supposed to feel really good, the boy thinks as delirium takes hold of his mind. And I'm going to assume that the emergency department doctors in F. Gardner's novel are all competent, so I'm, I'm not going to tell them how to suck eggs, but I just want to say if you've got someone who's going into shock and who is falling unconscious, you want to be really fucking careful giving him morphine or fentanyl. That You want to be... Really careful with that, because I mean, unless you're trying to euthanize them, you, you want to really watch what you're doing there. But look, F. Gardner's a pro. F. Gardner's a pro, and I'm sure this is best practice management of whatever is wrong with Pete getting getting roasted in a treehouse, struck by lightning. I feel as though every insult that I leave. Uh, <clears throat> leverage uh, every insult that i throw at another person uh might be able to be turned back at me so with that being said you know those in glass houses uh those in glass houses start podcast you really s- <laughs> yeah yeah fantastic um he is one of those guys that just probably doesn't know a lot about any one particular thing but has some loose spattering of knowledge from I don't I doubt he's read any full books about things <laughs> but he's read like <laughs> things articles and general. he thought <laughs> yeah but he uh he's read articles on like I don't know BuzzFeed or something and he thinks he's an expert in quantum physics and and shit now and so it's just full of these like loose kind of uh intelligence signaling moments like the quantum stuff the Baltimore stuff or like this the fentanyl stuff but it's really weak i don't like it it's it just, just makes me sound like a really annoying person and it's completely unnecessary it's like you're writing a horror novel a horror novel right we're not here to like learn science we're here to hear a good scary story <laughs> uh with that being said, maybe he is an expert in all these things. Yeah. 
He and could he's be. just letting us know. He can't, can't help it. Just seeping into his work. Now, the next chapter, Purgatorio, things get even worse. I've sent you over Discord a picture of my notes from this chapter. And I think the first line of my notes, it, it just sums up how I feel about this chapter and where the story's going. Just, just, just all of it. Uh, what are we at? Chapter 19, Purgatorio. P finds himself in the story he wrote. Fuck! <laughs> Jack just has fuck written. <laughs> and that was just, that's just how I feel about it. Fuck, it's getting it's even worse. It's looping in on itself. It's, it's meta-narrative self-reference looping yeah. in on itself. How Pete, many, This is like a fucking goosebump story gone wild, mate. <laughs> Pete wakes up in the story he wrote and it turns into basically a bad acid trip. I wonder if F. Gardner is just a huge space cake, ton, takes tons of psychedelics because this particular chapter chance. was like a bad trip. I guess so. Like, good on him, I guess, for rendering I've a bad trip. I've never had a bad trip. I don't know what... Because I've never tripped before. I've never taken acid or any sort of uh, illegal substance. Yeah. If I were to have taken these things, then I imagine that this is what I imagine the feeling of it not being fun. Could be like if I use my powers of imagination. Anyway, so what... So Pete wakes up and he's looking at the world through Raph's eyes... So remember how Raph looked in the mirror and screamed and the mirror shattered and then we didn't hear from Raph again. Well, turns out that Raph looked in the mirror and he saw Pete's face and Pete's green eyes that we're always told about. And then Pete becomes Jimmy at the Ouija board and then a stage appears and Pete receives a telepathic message from some beings that... Uh, really powerful or something. And then they disappear and Pete sees his creations, Joe, Raph and, and, and Jimmy on the stage and they're aware that they're creations of Pete's and they resent Pete for it because he made them suffer by creating them and... I think they stab him with scissors. And they bring up... Oh, fucking... That's right. He keeps bringing up derealization, depersonalization disorder. Yeah. Um, All the way from... And he two. keeps bringing up anathema, but misusing it. He keeps saying that anathema is like a punishment that's so bad you wish you were dead. Whereas I'm pretty sure that anathema, at least in the... At least in the... Christian or the theological sense is it's I think it's an, an ecclesiastic ban on something I'm pretty sure um, so I'm not a theologian or maybe I should say I'm the best theologian in the world but at least from my limited knowledge the way that he uses anathema is not what anathema means yeah I, I think he got it wrong which yeah fucking fine so Pete's creations want to kill him for their suffering and Jimmy stabs Pete through the nostrils with scissors and they decide to cook Pete in an oven and eat him for dinner. So they shut him in an oven. And when they shut him in the oven, he starts experiencing senses beyond 
the usual five senses that humans have. And he meets he meets transcendent entities. He starts experiencing proprioception. That mysterious and then sixth. he stops being able to remember his name. And then suddenly he's hungry. And I'll read a quote from the end of the chapter, which is just... Sounds like acid. Fucking... <laughs> I feel so hungry, Peach thinks to himself, as his newly formed stomach growls. Now in the illusion of a corporal plane, the boy looks over in the direction of other beings. Innocent laughter. Next to him, Pete could hear the sounds of children at play. Nature takes control over him as he begins to approach the laughing children. A loud thump catches Pete's attention and he turns to the point of origin. It was himself. It was him. As he had written himself in the story, an identical copy of himself trips and falls down beside him. Lying on his side, his double stares at him. Tiny green eyes stare back into his wide green ones as Pete's jaw opens and mouth salivates. Pete's double screams in terror as Pete's primal urges completely take over. He was now no longer possessing any sense of right or wrong, only an insatiable appetite. A symphony of screams rings loudly amongst the chaos as Pete feasts upon his own flesh. It's not till he's finished that common sense returns to Pete's mind. Tears begin to form, and for the first time ever, a crocodile cries for real. So Pete turns into a crocodile and eats himself in a story he wrote. <laughs> ah! <laughs> It's bullshit. It's uh, it's a DMT trip, or it's a it's something. It's a five meo trip. He uh, he just took it so many layers deep there. <laughs> so many layers deep. The thing I is, I don't know what how he. I don't know how he thinks that this can be considered horror though at this point because it's just surrealist. Like if you animated this, it would just be like one of those crazier, you know. Uh, surrealist films like animated films where shit's just changing and there's no explanation for it it's just weird stuff is happening like the opening scene of Rick and Morty the, like the credits the opening credits um, yeah it's ridiculous <laughs> yeah well, it's, in terms of horror, like, it's not horror have, it's surrealist at we have point. no idea what the stakes are because in the next chapter so as Pete is eating himself as a crocodile he sees two red eyes above him in the sky and someone is reading from the book of Pete's life and he realises that this person looking at him is the central character of the book he wrote that is named after his pet snake. I don't think this character is ever named though. But anyway. And then Pete wakes up in the treehouse and... And Mark and Johnny are there and are saying, oh, it didn't work. Nothing happened. So we've got another dream. That whole thing was 
Turns out not a dream sequence, but... <sighs> Pete forgets it, forgets that it happened and thinks that the ritual or whatever also didn't work, but has a bad feeling afterwards, so somewhat remembers it. And anyway, the other two kids go home and Jimmy goes and sees his mum, April. <sighs> Man, fuck. Jesus. <laughs> it's just like at what point do you feel at at all invested in anything that's happening in any of the characters yeah, exactly he just he like, fucks you just around so many times that you just into stop nothing. caring and it's not like these were particularly interesting characters to begin with even when i thought that we might stay with the character for the duration of the book he cooked it oh yeah and pete's glad that halloween's over and he, he um it. He, he goes to bed and pets his pet snake and then draws a picture of it, which is Ouroboros, like that symbol of a snake eating its own tail, which F. Gardner just keeps referencing in the book, but I don't know why. He, he's just got like this weird... You know why? Because it's self-referential. It's yeah, that's what I was thinking. It's like, oh, is it a story that constantly refers to itself? But... It's exactly what's happening. Yeah, f- yeah, fine. Okay, fine. It's uh, it's deeply symbolic, and <laughs> you know that's what's happening. <laughs> Chapter twenty one is 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 winter, and it's now winter, and Pete is reading with April, his mum, and April's watching the news. And on the news, there's an announcement of the opening of Nightmare Land, which is this theme park that's going to be built in a castle that was Vlad the Impaler's castle, which has been brought over from Romania specifically to make Nightmare Land. And of all of the inconsistencies in the book, I think this is the most jarring. The fact that Christmas <laughs> takes place in winter. And as we all know... It, <laughs> it's completely unnatural. It's, it's completely unrealistic. Christmas takes place in summer. So I live in Czech Republic at the moment where... I don't, I don't know. There, everyone's just doing where... it wrong. For some reason, they keep doing Christmas here in winter. And I keep trying to explain Which to everyone here sense. that Christmas doesn't... Happen in winter. And I think it's because I don't speak European and they don't speak Western in <laughs> Europe. Um, so there's that language barrier. But they, do, they just look at me blankly when I say, you're, you're doing Christmas wrong. It's meant to be warm. Why, aren't you make, why are you making it cold during Christmas? You're meant to make it warm. But They start yeah, speaking French at you. I need, I need to work on my European. Um, and I wish people <laughs> here would learn how to speak freedom. But yeah. That's 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 outside of the scope of this episode, I think. The language problems <laughs> to speak here in here in Europe. <laughs> so good. Well, the fact that there's only one language in Europe. Really a, well, yeah, everyone speaks European. Culturally devoid, they are. <laughs> I wish I'd learn a bit of Australian, but they don't. We learn about Pete's late father in this chapter. Turns out he was from Transylvania, and. <laughs> 
he was Transylvanian and must have emigrated from Romania at some point, but Pete didn't know him that well because he died when Pete was a baby. And he's he's just fucking introduced in the, the second or third last chapter or something and we're meant to give a shit about him. And he was really superstitious about stuff and Pete's mum gives this long-winded speech about how Oh, uh, it's just because people from Romania are like that. They're all superstitious because of of Vlad the Impaler, upon whom the Dracula story was based. Um, yeah, I mean, fine. Talks about him for ages about Vlad the Impaler, some fucking fifteenth century voivoden, Valachia, I think. But okay. Now that's 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 F. Gardner's latest fixation while he was writing this book. It's like he he doesn't think that the story or the characters or the ideas in the book can stand on their own merit, which they can't. They can't. He's so correct. He, so he feels he feels the need to like hang hang a bunch of references to other things. Off, yep. Off the as if that will somehow rescue the fucking train wreck that is his book and then april starts defrosting crocodile oh no 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 alligator because alligators are legal to cook as we've been told again and again in this book so (laughs) she starts defrosting alligator to eat for dinner and pete is unnerved by this but he can't put his finger on why he's so unnerved about eating alligator and asks to go to bed and he does. Oh, and then his mum really wants to go to Nightmare Land to the grand opening on Christmas Eve. Um, yeah, that's basically chapter 21. Chapter 22, the woman in black has a bit more going on. Pete wakes up. Uh, it's got, it's, it's now, he just keeps referencing vampires and Dracula. I quote, Light shines down from out of Pete's bedroom window, beaming directly at the sleeping boy's face. It was the morning sun shining down upon him, heavily, like when the day's light shines down upon a vampire's coffin. The garish illumination awoke the slumbering young man. You know, uh, uh, what's that film about werewolves versus vampires? Underworld. Uh, Underworld. Oh, that was a mad you know, movie. That was so That good. was great. And that only picked off two Two tropes, two horror tropes: vampires, and yeah. So like maybe Hellboy, cool. but it's a, an action film. Yeah, yeah. But F. Gardner, like he's picked like uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. It's got some sort of uh, like Pinhead vibes going on. It's got like Exorcist vibes going on. It then it gets into like vampire shit and yeah, weird yeah. surrealist stuff uh and then uh pre trippy self uh cannibalization and transfiguration stuff like what is going on here mate there is no there's no consistency like, yeah just pick a trope there's just no Stick focus just for one book you should just do one trope just be like i'm gonna write a vampire book and don't fuck around with werewolves don't fuck around with like Cthulhu monsters, you know. Just just stick to just the vampires, <laughs> mate. 
Just see if you can pull off one trope before you try to mix mix it up, you know? There are also so many scenes which could just be cut from the book and it would improve the book. How they go to some Christmas market before going to Nightmare Land and there are a lot of Romanians there and now that like it's just been introduced that Pete's dad is Transylvanian, they, he starts talking about Romanians all the time. And while they're walking around eating Romanian food at the Christmas market full of Romanians, April, Pete's mum, keeps talking about how superstitious Romanians are. And then the scene just ends and it doesn't add anything. So basically they... They both drive to Nightmare Land and get into a car park nearby and are really unnerved because the car park is not very full. And... This is one of those situations where the reader doesn't feel unnerved because there's not really any, any reason given for the reader to be unnerved. It's just that the characters keep saying, I am unnerved. This is pretty good, though, because April can't find her car keys and she reaches into her pocket to get them and hurts herself on a pair of scissors, which are in her pocket instead of her keys. And then she says, not again. Which, which diffuses what could have been the tension in the situation because this, the scissors are a recurring theme. I'm not sure what they're meant to be saying, but they keep being scissors popping up everywhere. Pete got stabbed by Jimmy through the nostrils with scissors. Joe fought off the Pete crocodile monster using scissors. But it's just the oddness of April finding scissors in her pocket for some reason and stabbing her hand on them and going, not again. Which implies that this keeps happening to her. And you think, wait, why do you keep <laughs> having scissors in your pocket? It, it, it just and totally about it. You put scissors in your whatever pocket tension the scene and you forgot about have. it. And it's not related to any supernatural stuff. It's just you're, you're a bit of a dunce. And you keep on fucking cutting your hands on scissors that you put in your fucking pocket. So you keep putting scissors in your pocket. <laughs> anyway, they, they made a black clad The explanation figure. is, I'm an idiot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Now, remember way back to the start of the book when, when Joe was driving Jimmy and Raph to their grandmother's place and he was explaining to them what deus ex machina was and he almost ran over a woman, an old woman wearing a black cloak because he, he, wasn't, he wasn't paying attention to the road. He was a distracted driver. Well, uh, what's his name? Pete, Pete and April hear a, a ringing noise in the car park, like the sound of keys, and they notice that there's an elderly woman wearing a black cloak who has April's car keys somehow, and she starts taunting them, and it's, it's the same woman that Joe almost ran over in Pete's dream or whatever. And she approaches... April and Pete. And I really like that April immediately considers stabbing this woman with the scissors in her pocket. That was her first response. I quote, What's going on here, ma'am? April asks, as she remembered the pair of scissors in her pocket. She didn't want to, but April realised that she could use it in self-defence if this woman were to try to get violent with her and Pete. The enigmatic woman's full ghoulish appearance grows completely clear in the light. 
She might not be anything otherworldly, but she could still be dangerous. Even an old woman could present a threat if they're mentally ill, Pete thought to himself as the woman stepped closer to their parking spot. You heard it here. That's how you deal with the mentally ill. You, you stab them with scissors. F. Gardner's got the right idea. <laughs> that you left in your pockets. Yeah, exactly. And his voice seems like that of, was that's the first of, thing that April thinks of. It's yeah, I'm gonna cut this woman up with these scissors that I've just got in my pocket. <laughs> Again. <laughs> and this book takes uh, a she, massive turn again from now on. It now turns into like a cult kind of thing. Cause then I, I the other issue that I have with F. Gardner in this book is his voicing of Jimmy's, sorry, Pete's in a monologue is like, just F Gardner. is this a kid? It's just F Gardner. Just, it's just F Gardner. the first thing that comes to his head. There's no voice. There's no sense of like trying to even give this, if this kid's 14 years old or something, there's no sense of age, no slang, no innocence, no nothing. It's just it's just F. Gardner just essentially getting a second way of narrating his own story. Yeah, but then every other character speaks exactly the same way as well. It's ev- everything is just F. Gardner. <laughs> anyway, April asks this lady who she is, and I'll just I'll just read the quote. It's where I'm from. Well, so this is the old lady replying. Well, the little club I'm part of has gone by many names. The Order of the Serpent, long ago, back in Romania. The Thule Society, back in Germany. I don't know how to pronounce. I've heard Thule, 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 but you'll get, you'll get Thule this time. Don't worry about Tuhula. your keys, miss. You and your sons are not going to need them. Not where you're going. You're not going home. Not tonight, the cloaked woman said, with dark conviction in her breath. I'm only going to ask you one last time. Who are you? April yelled. Pete and her were now well aware that this woman was nothing short of a threat, despite her frail appearance. The ghastly woman sneered. Calm down. Come this way. Inside the castle, she says, pointing towards the parking garage's exist. Not an exit, it's an exist. As the two of them already came there to visit the castle, they do as she says while keeping their distance. I'm going to get security once I get there, April says sternly, as the cloaked woman continues her creepy chuckling. Swinging the door open, the mother and son walk through the exit and onto their final destination. At last. I love that April, fucking mother of the year, decides that this woman's a real threat and just decides to follow her anyway. It's like, yeah, okay, I'll go with this woman with my son now that I've decided that she's a threat. My son and scissors, and I'm going to talk to the security guards. I'm going to go full Karen on this bitch. <laughs> but first, I'm going to follow her into the castle. <laughs> and uh, this is petty, but he keeps getting it wrong. It's not a typo. They cross a jawbridge, not a drawbridge. So a jawbridge. I just think of a giant mouth open. Like they walk across its tongue to get into this castle. The castle that was taken Maybe from was Romania and rebuilt in Chicago. By, by a cult, by the Order of the Serpent, to trap Pete. And the Order of the Serpent, who has not appeared until the last maybe 20 pages of the story, who have grand designs on Pete, but, and we're meant to be invested in them, even though we've only just learned about them. So 
basically they, they're last in chapter second last yeah chapter no, 23 so dracula's castle they're in nightmare land a blizzard started and they enter the castle and the jaw bridge is is pulled up behind them they're trapped <laughs> although f gardner forgets this later and they just leave through the exit but fine yeah <laughs> <laughs> They they come into the castle and they're suddenly surrounded by all of these people in black cloaks which have the Ouroboros on their hoods. And the old woman from the car park appears and starts talking to April and Pete. And all of these people are members of the Order of the Serpent. And former members of the Order of the Serpent were Dracula and Heinrich Himmler. That's how you know it's a bad fucking... It's just such a lazy thing. It's, oh, how, how do I let the reader know that this is a, a bad society? Well, <laughs> stick some Nazis in it. We'll stick a Nazi and Dracula in it just so you know that these people are bad news. Yeah, subtle. <sighs> so this, this lady subtle. explains what the Order of the Serpent does. I'll, I'll just read the quote because that's probably easier than me summing it up. The people I just mentioned, and as a note, Himmler and Dracula. Why? They were very dedicated members to our cause, the cloaked woman responds. Cause? What cause? Pete inquires of the mysterious lady. Our organisation deals with the practice of magic, the science behind one's own will, the practice of focusing one's thoughts, or prayers if you prefer that term, the belief that mankind can essentially generate results into reality if enough people want something enough. Prayers but to a much more extreme degree, the darkly cloaked woman explains at them. And she should have just used the SE5. That would have been easier. She could have hit up Don Paris PhD, paid him $5,700, and would have been fine. <laughs> anyway. It would have been a better read. Do you know who Heinrich Himmler was? He was Adolf Hitler's right-hand man in World War II. It's widely known that he was deep into occult practices, and ours is the same group he was part of. It was called the Thule Society in his time. Before him, the Order of the Serpent in Dracula's time, when he had membership in it, we mean to bring about a new world order by willing a being capable of tremendous destruction into it, she continues. A being? April asks, scratching her chin with her still bleeding finger. There are already so many legends based on Count Dracula, and we thought maybe we could take advantage of that. Sure, he might not have actually been a vampire or anything like that, since vampires don't really exist. But if we capitalise on the imagination of all those who are intrigued by legends such as that, perhaps we can morph something like that into the real world, the woman explains. Basically, their plan is to kidnap fiction authors or people who are highly talented when it comes to fiction or creative like, writing. Like, like Gardner. And like get Gardner. the Exactly like F. Gardner. And... He's the target. Get the, he's the, the ultimate target. <laughs> and get them to, I guess, write stories to make the general public think about this destroying being who'll bring about the new world order for the order channeling of the imagination. The like all going channeling. And then the order of the serpent are going to use. So they've built. They were the ones responsible for moving this Romanian castle to Chicago and they've in rebuilding it they made sure to make all the materials really nice and flammable so that 
when people when when people come in to look at it, they're going to lock the gates, they're going to pull up the drawbridge and set the place on fire and kill everyone, and that'll be a sacrifice to the creature that has been written about by very talented authors that the public believes in now. And burning everyone to death in the Dracula castle will be an offering to that being, which will make it real. I think that's what their, their plan is, but I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not sure. Should we read the final chapter? There's a section where they explain to Pete... Um, Actually, no, no, fuck it. I can't be. Yeah, no, I'm not reading that quote. I can't. I can't be asked. Somehow they escape the this situation. I love <laughs> how. Can you tell us how, how Pete saves the day? I actually, I should say though. Um, can we so just read it? this lady yeah, tells Pete, "Okay, you can join us willingly, or we'll make you work for us." And she reveals their grand stable of two authors who are tied to chairs with their mouths gagged. And she's like, look, you can willingly join the Order of the Serpent or you can be like these two authors whom we've kidnapped and tied up and somehow they're helping us write about this destroying monster or something. And so Pete has to think quickly about how he's going to get everyone out of this situation. Is that your answer, Pete? Rejection? The woman asks, as she slowly walks around the boy, as if a cat stalking its prey. Mum, run, Pete says, as he decides to take the offensive. What are you doing, the evil woman says, as Pete quickly rushes towards the cold stone wall of the castle. Stop him, the mad woman shouts, as she sees the boy grab one of the torches heating the room. Taking it off the wall, the young man thrusts the blazing torch atop the draping, which had previously been thrown onto the floor as the, qu- as the fire quickly began to engulf it. Shocked by the child's resourceful spontaneity, the other members of the cult jolt back, feeling the heat of the flames in their faces. No, you idiot. Are you trying to kill yourself too? The woman screams, reaching out for the boy. Defending her son, April pulls the pairs of, pair of scissors out of her pocket and thrusts it towards the vixen. Blood oozes out of the upper abdomen of the wicked mistress as April holds the bloodied pair of scissors in her hand. In shock and anguish, the sinister woman screams. Falling to her knees, the burning drape catches the bottom of her coat. Taken off guard, the rest of the cult begin to take a tactical retreat. The, closed me- the cloaked members move quickly towards a marble door and run inside it. So Pete just fucking... Burns this place down. April stabs an old woman. And then they, they untie the authors and run away and leave through the exit. That's, that's it. And then, oh, actually, so as they're running out, Pete doesn't know his way around Nightmare Land Castle, but a disembodied voice starts guiding him. And he just decides that it's his dead dad telling him where to go. And okay. And then as yeah. he's about to get out of the castle, he sees a huge crocodile thing, like a crocodile phantom, and it screams at him and lunges for him, but just passes through him. 
because it's a, a ghost or something, I guess. And then they all just leave and are given... April and Pete are given blankets by firefighters. And I don't know what happens to the like, two authors that they freed. They're just forgotten about. And also they're just like, yeah, we're not going to take you into the police station or the hospital or anything. You're just like, just go yeah, home. Yeah, just go home. Let's go home. This is a fucking burning castle that you just ran out of. Yeah, so that's one of those deus ex machina things. It's just like, there's no explanation for it. It's just, oh, I heard the ghost of my father like beckoning me to find the right exit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just It's just piss weak. <laughs> and it's not like, so it's like, you, you know, in Star Wars that use the force Luke, like Obi-Wan Kenobi talking to Luke. It's, you know, it's some way it's like this, except that was earned because Obi-Wan Kenobi was a, an established character by that point. It was, even though the Force is hand-waving, at least the Force was established somewhat. So they'd established a way and also that like, this dead guy could talk to You have to, to be so it was much more Jedi in order to do that, right? Yeah. I'm pretty sure like not just random normal people can do it. You have to have like gone through training to be a master Jedi or something. Yeah. I don't know enough about Star Wars lore to say that with authority, but that's what I'm guessing. Um, yeah, whereas this is just like, Ad hoc, okay, I need to get this character out of this situation. <laughs> what we'll do. Yeah, and then the book just ends with... So chapter 24, Horrors End. This is the last paragraph of the book. It's, you acted bravely tonight, Pete. Oh, and it's April and Pete are just at home again that night. Like that not very faced, night not they fucking burned down this giant castle. You acted bravely tonight, Pete. I'm proud of you. I think your dad would be too, she tells her son. I have a feeling he was with us tonight, Pete says, as he closes the page of the book he's reading. You're not still reading Dracula, are you? April asks the boy as she sits up out of her chair. No, I'm reading something else, he tells her. April walks over to her son and looks at the book's cover. Oh my, that's a story I don't think I've heard in a long time, the mother comments. Pete nods his head. Me too. And there are so many, so that's the end of the book. There are so many unanswered questions. Because another, a byproduct of him just jumping through different ideas, never sticking with one, is that all of those leave loose ends that aren't tied up. Like, what happens to this, this doomsday cult that just ran off? What's this book that Pete's just- reading? What was the, char- the central character in Pete's headcanon that became real, that was named after his pet snake? There's, just, there's so much shit going on that just isn't tied up. And the stuff that did happen, you don't really give a shit about. All I can say is that... It's like nearly 9.30 here. <laughs> We've been <laughs> yeah, going since five. I'm pretty ready to be done with <laughs> um, this. I'd pretty f- this is- fucking wrecked right now. Um... This is one of those books I that's went just from being boring. sober to being not sober to being sober again <laughs> <laughs> in the course of a single podcast recording, much like Edward yep. recently. Um, so there we go. I really dislike this guy. Yeah, it was a terrible. <laughs> I have a feeling that I will also I would also dislike him as a person, just based on what he's written. Oh, watch but his, I don't know watch his YouTube sure. videos. Nice you get you get much more of a feeling of F Gardner. It also is good if you watch enough of them, you start reading his prose in his voice. Oh, no. Which is even better. (laughs) 
Alright, I'll watch like one video. Um Yeah, it's pretty cooked, hey. Yeah. I hate I can't fucking stand this book. Fuck this book. I have nothing good to say about this book. I'm trying to think so there was that one scene with the grandmother pulling herself into a drawer that was kind of okay. That's uh, I did like fetus fetus man. I like the fetus one. Oh, yeah, I just thought that, that, that was, was good. I thought that fetus. was just cheap. So okay, so you liked that. Uh, I like fetus monster. Yeah. What well, other phrase can I give? Baby jokes, so. I mean, ultimately, yeah, it is what it is. ultimately, our rating system for this show is: would you recommend the book or not? And just no, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. No. <sighs> no. If you're thinking about what uh, did he do well reading this book, um, maybe shave all your hair off and. Stick your head in some Vaseline and then put your head through like some small bars and then just stay there. <laughs> and never leave. And don't read this book. And while you're there, start referencing Dante. <laughs> start referencing Dante for no reason. While the F Gardener bot takes over the reality. And turns your all your atoms into material to... Create more F Gardener pros out of. <laughs> All right. So, next episode, you're choosing the book. You haven't you haven't picked it yet, but I'm leaning towards messages for the world. Yeah, we Whatever might we called. might messages some guy collected together a bunch of Osama bin Laden's writings and speeches and things like that. So we might do Osama next episode. Osama might be a good one. As a good yeah. as a good counter that could be Boxing Day special. As a counterpoint we could release to Osama. F Gardner's F Gardner's philosophy of the world. Osama bin Laden. We've covered a couple We've done a couple of Christian episodes. We need to do some Islamic, Islamic episodes. Yeah. You know, eventually we've done white nationalism. Like, we're going to get around to, like, black nationalism and, and stuff. Don't worry, guys. Oh, the, the Nation of Islam. on this show. We need nation to do a Nation of Islam, Islam, Islam episode because some of that stuff is so it's crazy. Yeah, so, like, don't worry, guys. I know you think we're all about white nationalists. We're not. All right. We like to cover everybody. We're, our show, we have a very strong diversity and inclusion board here <laughs> on the Book Club from Hell where we ensure that we cover crazy and horrible from all walks of life. We're, very, we're equal opportunity like that. Yeah, yeah. And, f- and we're not the sort of DEI, you know, lame, hyper-progressive types you know, we don't do active discrimination. We just think, you know, like positive discrimination. We don't do that. So we're not going to go out and find some like crazy texts by people of color just because they're by people of color. No, we we both really think that, well, we choose books based on merit, purely on merit. Based on, purely on merit. And so if a person of color or a disabled person or... Or whatever person, an Islamic person, ends up on this show is because they earned it. We're colorblind. It's because they fucking like, earned it. F. Gardner, F. Gardner could be of any background, and we'd still hate Call of the Crocodile. <laughs> F. Gardner <laughs> could be any sexuality, and I'd still want to kick him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it is what it is. He earned his place in on the, the show, the book club from Hell Pantheon. He's going to become a villain on our uh, 
unreleased video game <laughs> where we are where we actually just torture all the people it's a it's a torture video game and we just torture everybody that's been on the show including ed <laughs> <laughs> and ourselves well we torture ourselves and more ourselves. than anyone else yeah this is we're the ones who have to read the makeup yeah yeah i am well and truly cooked i haven't eaten and i'm fucking hungry and i need to go and not think about f gardener for a while i'm so fucking happy <laughs> i finished this book i'm sorry i'm really hey. sorry for picking this one. <laughs> uh, yeah yeah no you really did it this time <laughs> you were the one who picked the beginning was the end i still think that's the worst thing i've ever that read. was way better than this man no way, way. i would i'd read this a few times before reading the beginning was the end again. that's still the lowest point for me all right, let's check off. Last right. shout out. Go get on the Discord. Join us on the Discord. Motherfuckers, subscribe on Spotify. Give us five stars, you bitches. Upvote us. We need that. We need that mad fucking viral content recommendation engine pumping out there, getting our name out there. Join the Discord. Give us suggestions. Give us dank memes. Give us quotes. It's fucking dope. It's heaps of fun yeah. on the Discord. Any other get shout outs? Oh, shout out Xi Jinping, our greatest fan. Shout out to Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping called shout me the Xi. other day and told me how much he loved the podcast. Um, my boy yep. G, shout out, shout, shout out. out to G. Yeah. What's up, G? We hang out a lot. Um, I hang out with a lot of world leaders. He particularly likes F Gardner. He recommended F Gardner to hey, me. Hey, shout out to G. Should we start uh, requesting uh, come tributes to Xi Jinping? Come tributes to Let's Xi Jinping. Post them in the. If Discord. you're a fan of this show, join the Discord. We'll start a channel that's come tributes, and our first come tribute will be collective come tribute will be to Xi Jinping. If you don't, if you don't have a penis, then um, piss yeah, piss tributes, piss tributes from the ladies. Piss tributes, piss tributes. Yep, yeah, it's all, all great. To, all it's to, to Daddy G. That's what I call him when Daddy G. When we do the S and M. He's my leather daddy. Just red leather, red leather. He's pudgy kind of middle-aged man with uh, his little fucking cock cage on. He's got an absolute we'll him, we'll him anaconda cock though. So <laughs> shout out to G. I heard he's got two. I heard he's got two dicks. He's oh man. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to divulge too much without asking Daddy G if I'm allowed to talk about it. But I mean, look, he'll probably just. Drone strike my house. Xi Jinping is in our Discord. So if you want to talk to the leader of the free world, come join our Discord. <laughs> um, do we have anything to add apart from come and piss tributes to Xi Jinping? That's, I think, the most important. important oh, yeah, don't read this book. Yeah, the, don't read and this the second book. most important thing is don't fucking read don't this read book. Don't read this book. Yeah. Spend all the time you would spend reading this book and making your cum jar or piss jar to Xi Jinping. Immerse that picture of him out. See you next time. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you. <laughs>